Blog Talk Radio. So vast, so great, the African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony, the earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity, human beings. Human love on a spiritual tip. So vast, so great. The African embrace. Live beyond love beyond your skin. To where you belong. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
directly important to your well-being and your community. And the thing people are talking. So that's the order of the event for today's program. Right now we're going to get started with our party by introducing you to our political panelists and analysts for today's program. We first would like to bring in Brother Haki, and we'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamaki Mashoki, and I'm currently with African Awareness. And, of course, you know my thing is institution building. But, uh, you know, Brother Africa, i got to say, one of the things that I find astounding is that when we talk about the right-wing society's willingness uh, to go to any extent to prevent movements from happening in this country, uh, oftentimes we don't talk about the fact that on the left, uh, so-called left-wing progressives also are instrumental in terms of, you know, undermining movements. So I thought I'd talk a little bit today about uh, this particular uh, study that came out some a couple, a couple of uh, – about uh, – back in the, uh, the early 2000s, I believe it was. Anyway, it's by uh, Erica Chenoweth. It's called a 3.5% rule. The notion that if you can get 3.5% of the population to participate in civil disobedience, you can affect political change. But anyway, check this out, Brother Africa. Now, Erica Chenoweth co-authored a study which concluded civil disobedience is the most effective method to bring about political change. Implicit in her findings is the notion powerful elites are motivated by moral appeal. This begs the question, if powerful elites are motivated by morality, why engage in policies or laws specifically to dehumanize, subjugate, and exploit the most vulnerable people? Upholding systems that justify needless suffering while at the same time innovating media infrastructure which express purpose is to justify the harm inflicted on the poor while legitimizing the savagery of wealthy elites who benefit from perpetuating anti-human values and mores. This report further confounds and confuses because it seeks to liquidate any relevance pertaining to humans' drive for autonomy. The notion people want to feel they have control of their lives is a very powerful instinct. This study seeks to dismiss this powerful drive by implying the path to liberation is obtained by being subservient, or in other words, giving power to others. Philosophically, the intent of social movements has always been to avoid or indeed minimize loss of life. The history of political struggle has always documented the use of violence has always been initiated by ruling elites. Any violence employed by movements have always been in response to state violence where defending the community became a necessity given the ruthlessness employed by the state to maintain its repression. In this regard, human anatomy compels a response. Whether this response is civil disobedience or armed resistance is understandable. However, this study seeks to legitimize one strategy, civil disobedience, or discounting the other. This propensity manifests itself repeatedly in the study. Highlighting specific movements in the world to make her case, she conveniently omitted the struggles in Africa. No other continent in the world has been invaded, plundered, and colonized consistently. Had African states subscribed to the moral appeal to oppressive systems generally with advocates, Africa would still suffer from 17th century style colonialism. Instead, she chose to highlight the countries of Philippines and Georgia. In her attempt to make her case civil disobedience the most effective strategy for political change, her historical analysis failed to take into consideration the role of geopolitics or Western intelligence intervention in shaping events in those countries and ultimately the process of installing preferred leadership in those countries. In the case of the Philippines, the study credits uh, civil disobedience for removing President Marcos. A closer look reveals otherwise. Marcos, a CIA asset, a pro-U.S pro-U.S. politician, was instrumental in disarming and arresting Hook or party members who allied, allied 
in defeating Japanese occupation of the Philippines. Marcos, a trusted U.S. ally, alienated Washington when he advocated disbanding U.S. military bases if the U.S. refuses to pay rent for the bases. In 1977, the CIA and Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld expressed indignation at Marcos' proposal. Marcos' days were numbered. Exaggerating the threat of the Muslim insurgency in the Philippines, the CIA in 1985 concluded Marcos had to go. A plan was put into motion to force Marcos out of power. Beginning the plan was to prop up Corazon Aquino for president. Aquino, it was believed by the CIA, was more pliable and less likely to pursue wealth at the expense of U.S. dictates. Marcos' pursuit of wealth at all costs was problematic for the CIA. Freeing Marcos may side with Russians if pay is sufficient, he had to be replaced. Finalizing the plan saw the CIA pay out $45 million in bribes to businessmen and real estate investors who lost their property to Marcos' business schemes. In return, they were to support Aquino. Large expenditures provided the Philippines military brought goodwill among military leaders, ensuring Aquino would be supported. Feeling the military had fallen out of favor with him, Marcos' suspicions were confirmed when the media highlighted people power in his headlines. The same people who supported Marcos now created conditions to demonize Marcos. Those who demonstrated had no understanding of the political ma uh, manipulation taking place. Their presence at demonstrations were orchestrated by CIA planning, corrupt business officials, and right-wing politicians. Marcos had to go. Reaching an agreement with the U.S. officials, Marcos was allowed to leave, Hawaii, leave and go to Hawaii and to retain his ill-gotten gains. His removal from power had nothing at all to do with civil disobedience, but everything to do with geopolitical planning and Western manipulation. In the case of the country of Georgia, the study credits the Rose Revolution for the, for the removal of President Edward Shravanasa. Ironically, the Rose Revolution, it's believed, was named after right-wing pro-U.S. puppet Mikhail Shakaskrili, who was pictured storming the Georgia parliament with roses. Again, Shannon Wilf's analysis falls woefully short of analyzing facts on the ground. Shravanasa policies, many of them were progressive, believing the entrepreneurial spirit of people should be unleashed he embraced local initiatives giving power to local governments. His industrial initiatives, according to World Bank, contributed to the growth of the Georgian economy to 9.6%, while agriculture output increased over 18%. This productivity gain were to a large extent a result of Georgia's trade with Russia. By 1998, these economic gains were eroded by declines in trade. Between 1986 and 1991, Russia began to do restructure. Under Glasnost, openness, and perestroika, a restructure of economy, restructuring economy, business relationships were severed. U.S. strategies compelling Russia to spend increasing amount of money on weaponry crushed Russia's economy. Yeltsin, the president, endorsed Russia's restructuring of its economy, providing an opening for U.S. penetration to create a satellite state. Western expenditures were used to destabilize both Russia and Georgia. The number of NGOs, non-government organizations during this period, specifically those from the U.S. and U.K., increased from, from to over 4,000. U.S. Agency of International Development spent over $1.5 million on computerized voting systems in Georgia. The Open Society Institute, led by George Soros, funded opposition in Georgia while funding the right-wing politician Shaka Sfili. Interestingly enough, the relationship between organized crime and social movements obtained much visibility. As a politician, one against the people, Shevardnadze's response to the threat against his power was quite constrained. Criticized by Russian politicians for not cracking down hard on protesters in Georgia, Shevardnadze believed in the people's right to be free. In fact, 
His personal philosophy has always been the catalyst of his convictions. In fact, in 1991, he resigned as foreign minister under Gorbachev, citing, quote, the reactionary resurgence threatening the Soviet Union with dictatorship, end quote. Referring to perestroika or the structure of the of Russian economy, his words were pathetic. Gorbachev did not conceal his contempt for, Sha- for, for Shabonazza. After Shabonazza made the statement, an assassination attempt was made on his life the following year. Additional attempts, too, to be specific, on his life took place in 1995 and 1998. On the one hand, uh, potential threats emanated from pro-Western Russian officials and threats from the West. Shabonazza was caught in the middle. The reason he stepped down seemed to preserve his life, if not his principles, not because of some ill-informed masses who were manipulated into attendance at some demonstration consisting of 10 or 15,000 people out of a population of 4 million, a far cry from the 3.5% participation rate needed to affect change, according to Chenoweth. Now, the problems I have with this report, Brother, Brother African, I'll be real, real quick, the three, three concerns I have with this report. One, when she, when she talks about 3.5% uh, uh, percentage that you need of the population to, to bring about political change in the system, uh, it's very interesting. So we're only talking about 10 to 15,000 people who appeared at this rose revolution, but according to her own math, it would take at least 140,000 people to actually affect change. So clearly that is problematic. Secondly, uh, civil, now civil demonstrations are good at getting people to understand the repressive nature of policy, but it does nothing to disrupt the structural nature of the system. For instance, in the UK, you, know, you may throw paint on the Bank of England, but the bottom line is structural uh, dimensions of that bank in terms of uh, funding the wealth, uh, funding uh, cartels, uh, and, you know, c- c- contributing to policies which ensures the global climate becomes an issue, continues to be an issue. Uh, none of that's going to change by simply throwing, throwing uh, paint on the, on the wall. So clearly the structural issues remain. And lastly, and probably most pernicious, is the fact that when you, when you think about of the impetus of this philosophy in terms of civil civil disobedience, it renders self-determination movement as dangerous because defending one's life against state repression is defined as immoral. And this, to give you an example, uh, during the 60s, the Black Panthers Party chose to defend themselves. Many liberals opposed this idea because their position was by virtue of the Black Panthers defending themselves against vicious police attacks, they were in fact somehow immoral. So, they, so, they, so, they, so there's a fundamental shift in terms of support. Uh, as opposed to supporting the Black Panther Party in terms of its need for self-determination, these liberals try to embrace the system itself. And so they were actually instrumental in terms of assisting the system in terms of the kind of oppression it was carrying out. So clearly the problem was not so much the system any longer, the problem was the Black Panther Party. So here in the 21st century, we have a similar kind of dynamic. So it's very, very interesting, but I'll, but I'll simply close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we would like to welcome Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the moon. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts, Brother Africa. I am pro-choice, and I vote. Thank you for allowing me to be on the show one more time. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next, we'll go to uh, 
Special guest for this week, Brother Marwin, we'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. Yeah, thank you, brother, uh, for having me back on the show. It's been a while. Um, and I'm just grateful to have the opportunity to have been around for the number of years that I've been around, uh, to be able to see the transformation and some small changes. Uh, but And I know that we may get into this um, later, but I, I just wanted to start out uh, by recommending to people uh, a, a book that uh, it, it, I think is an excellent book that help that will be very helpful to understanding uh, our present day situation. Uh, the book is Cast: The Origins of Our Discontent by a sister called Isabel Wilkinson, and uh, I do recommend this highly recommend this book for everyone to read. Um, to get a better understanding of the system in which we live under, okay, and, and, and possibly be able to glean some insight as to why certain things are working the way that they're working. The second thing I would like to say, and it goes by another book that I would highly recommend, is a book called Conservatives Without Conscience. Uh, this book was written by John Dean, and I think this book was written about 2006, which was a... He did it along with a guy, I can't think of his name, but he was a sociologist. And what, and what they did uh, is, again, talk in the book through a study that what we're seeing today uh, is with this authoritarianism uh, that is masked under conservatism, uh, that this was coming our way. And uh, so we are really really need to, to understand that, there really are no real conservatives, okay, anyway, uh, at least not now. But these, those are two books I would highly recommend uh, for people who uh, really want to get an insight into some, some of the things that are going on in our society and system of this day. Thank you for inviting And, Brother Marwin, before you leave, I can ask you again, can you repeat that first book for our listening audience that you suggest that we should read, the first uh, book? It's, it's CAST, C-A-S-T-E, The Origins of Our Discontent by Isabel Wilkinson. Okay, good enough. We thank you. Okay, we're also going to bring in this caller, see if this caller would like to uh, say a few words in terms of making an opening statement. We're going to bring in caller 7236, caller 7236. Good evening. Good evening, Carlos. Good evening. Good evening, Brother Africa and panelists. My name is Eleanor Johnson, and I'm delighted to have an opportunity to participate in this evening's broadcast. And uh, today is, for me, Easter, and I wish everyone a very, very blessed Easter. And the book cast is an excellent book. Thank you for bringing it up. All right. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. And to our listening audience, on behalf of Africa on the Moon, we too would like to wish everyone a happy Easter, a happy Easter weekend, and hope that um, everything will be lovely for you. So put down that food now and join us on Africa on the Moon. 
what we're going to do right now, we're going to take a quick station break, and when we come back, we're going to discuss what's going on in your world and the community. And we'd like to invite you to call in on this segment, what's going on in your world and the community, by calling in at 323 679 You listen to Brother Africa, and this is Africa on the Move. We'll be right back. Pour le développement de notre continent, 
Conservatism is, is nothing more than a euphemism for fascism. In fact, the only way for them to preserve their power is through ultimate destruction. And so when we talk about conservatism, we've got to be very clear what we're talking about. And as such, uh, one of the people that sort of highlight this kind of uh, conservative hypocrisy is a woman by the name of Jenna Ryan. Now, Jenna Ryan was a big-time uh, big realtor in Texas. She flew on a private, private, private plane 
to Washington for the big protest on, on January 6th. Now, a proud conservative whose actions indicate the lack of conservatism credentials and more than pulse of fascist unions. Conservatism really means to oppose change. Why would conservatives put in place actions that fundamentally seek to invalidate the electoral system? In the case of Ryan, uh, the strain of fascism or the good old days may have proved to be irresistible draw. Twitter lay bare the most intimate of thoughts that shaded some light on her motivations. On a Twitter account, in response to posts stating she was going to jail, she responded, definitely not. Not going to jail. Sorry, I have blonde hair, white skin, a great job, and a great future, and I'm not going to jail, end quote. Deconstructing her language, one could only conclude her words as well as a high degree of certainty. Even though she was documented illegally occupying the Capitol, she was convinced she would evade justice. But why? Is she special? She revealed she has blonde hair, white skin. What possible relevance should blonde hair, white skin have on the judicial process? Perhaps in Ryan's world, these characteristics underscore what being truly American means. If these traits define Americanism, it quite literally differentiates one American from another. In this regard, Ryan certain, certainly, certainly will be judged by a different legal standard that applies to her and is supported by a legal system which has, in fact, a dual function. Ryan's certainty the legal system favors its own seems irrefutable. Oddly, conservatism has and continues to uphold a bifurcated justice system that favors wealthy white people like Ryan. Clearly, she's aware. Ryan's sense of absolutism, or the notion wealth rules, rules the world, was personified when she reached and she threatened news agencies for reporting the rioters in Washington in unflattering terms. Describing the protesters as insurrectionists, uh, such characterization was simply too much or too far-fetched for her to reconcile. These protesters, in Ryan's view, were almost overwhelmingly white patriots seeking redress from the government which failed, to, which failed white power by conspiring to remove Trump from power. Ryan's insistence that Trump's presence in the White House will benefit the nation despite a declining economy, failure to address the pandemic or rampant corruption suggests her concerns did not lay with the State of the Union. Perhaps the real benefit of a Trump president was the massive Wealth giveaway too wealthy. Surely a big-time realtor could benefit from rising home values. So perhaps maybe that's why she supported Trump. So it has nothing to do in terms of what's good for the nation or what is good for her pocketbook. So clearly, uh, this, 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 uh, when we talk about this, um, this, uh, this destructive impulse that exists among conservatism in terms of their desire uh, to facilitate fascism, desire to facilitate the totalitarian state, then clearly we understand that there's real incentive for those people who have access to wealth to perpetuate a system and ensure more wealth. And so in order to ensure more wealth, then we talk about essentially we talk about more destruction. So clearly we got to understand that correlation between conservatism and authoritarianism. So it's important we understand that, that historical point. Next we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community, Brother Moses? Well, um, I think, you know, we've had a very interesting uh, situation in terms of the COVID-19. I think a lot of people are getting vaccinated. Uh, uh, I've had some family members come down with it positively. They're they're, they're not the the oldest of the family, but but they're vulnerable. I think uh, oh the the voting rights um, 
basically voting is under attack on one of the basic fundamental principles of democracy or a democratic society. We have to struggle to make it a democratic society. It just won't happen. And the voting rights is under attack. And, and uh, Trump and, and uh, is suggesting that we, that uh, people boycott uh, Coca-Cola and, and, and uh, Delta and all the different companies that, that in Atlanta who come out against, against the government in Atlanta. So these, these, the class struggle is intensifying. Um, lines are getting drawn. Um, uh, it may not seem clear to everybody, but lines are getting drawn. Uh, the differences are becoming more acute, and uh, and uh, you have to pay attention to details. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And there we go, Brother Marvin. What's going on in your world community? Uh, well, I've been participating with a local organization here in, the, in Richmond, Crusade for Voters, uh, with their emphasis on voter education and voter registration. Now, ordinarily, um, as I, in our conversation we have had prior to uh, coming on the air, uh, yeah, I would just say that voter, regist- voter registration and voter education is extremely important because it's a starting point and, and, and because more people and because of the amount of information over the last, I would say, last 10 years, maybe the last 20 years, uh, having Barack Obama in the, in the White House uh, as a starting point. Because the next generation is going to be facing uh, a, a lot of issues that we have not been able to tackle, but it's clearly presented itself today uh, with the attempted overtaking uh, of the Capitol um, to throw out the election uh, and what's going on in Georgia. So in my world right now is trying to just get the next generation to understand the fight that we are in. And as much as this fight can be discouraging, that they're going to have to take this fight uh, until we can uh, strategize to be able to um, put ourselves in a better position. Because right now, more than anything else, is that we are in a position where we are oppressing ourselves, so to speak, because of the miseducation that we are, we, we have always received it, but I think we are inundated with it now. Uh, and because of the media and how information is presented to us, uh, you know, this right and left idea, I, 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 don't, I don't subscribe to that. I just subscribe to the fact that there are two groups of white people, okay, those who are absolutely against us and those who display some level of humanity, okay? And, and the battle, because every time if you listen and we listen carefully, all of the discussion in the news when it comes to the left and the right, as they, as they call it, it's about cultural issues, issues in which those of the European is beginning to recognize their loss of power. And what has scared the hell out of them is what happened in Georgia, okay? And so they see this, this, this change. And rather than even come up with any ideas, uh, supposedly ideas, 
to be able to work with people and humanity to make it better, they they are all open to say, no, we are going to have this power, we have always had this power, and we are going to maintain this power at all costs. And so this boycott comes into play because one of the things that political power is nothing without economic power. And that and so those two things are going to have to be demonstrated that we have some economic power. Not, and, and right now, the only economic power I, I perceive that we have is consumer. But we are going to have to, for the next generation, to move from being consumers to producers. And I do see some signs of that. But in my world right now, working with this organization to try to get more young people to understand the importance of participating in the voting uh, uh, rights. Uh, and I'll just say this for, for those that may not recognize what has really happened in this country, as I've stated. We as Africans in this country, uh, if you think about it and if you pay attention, we have the 15th Amendment in the Constitution. But yet we have to vote under a voting right uh, bill, and simply because the federal government has not had the ability to protect our ability to vote in this country uh, on a federal level, because all of our elections are administered on the state level. So that is an important point to me, because what it says, if you you have a 15th Amendment that's supposed to give us our ability to vote, but yet we are not able to vote under the 15th Amendment. We have to vote on some special, special uh, bill that has to be renewed every 25 years. Thus, it brings up the question of our citizenship, so-called citizenship in this country. So we have some real issues that we're going to have to confront and, uh, and really bring to the forefront for the next generation because we have to give them an opportunity to be on a level playing field, which I don't know if, if that's going to be if we're going to be able to do that. But that's the work that needs to be done. Hey, brother Marwin, can I just stop you for a second and just get your response? And other panelists can weigh in too, because you raised a really interesting point about the electoral politics of voting. If African voting um, criteria comes under the state level. They often tell us that federal laws truncate state laws. If that is true, why it does not, or is not being applied in this manner? Well, as, as I understand it from the historical perspective is, the, the system, our voting system, is administered by the state. But with the federal government, because we have the federal powers, that the federal government can go into, okay, and federalize, which means that the laws are, uh, uh, go across all the states, okay? So, but the state is responsible for administering all of the, the, the elections that take place in local, state, and federal. That is a state issue. And, if you, and all you have to do is go back to history to understand the poll taxes and things that each state utilized to keep black people from voting, okay? And so that's how the federal powers were utilized under the Civil Rights Bill to ensure that, okay, they put in a set of rules 
that said that, okay, each state had to meet the guidelines, and, and, and which was under what they call Section 5, which was the preclearance. They had to go through the Department of Justice to get that clearance to say that they could do make any changes in the laws. So the, the system is it's a state system, but if they can get this bill passed uh, that's in the Senate now, which will say – uh, what they call the uh, HR one, uh, HR four, uh, get it passed. It will then be a set of laws that would be equal, so supposedly equitable. I would say not equal, but equitable throughout the land. Okay, let's go to our sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, what's going on in your world and the community? Yes, it's Eleanor. I'm sorry. Uh, um, Thank you. I'd like to uh, follow up on Brother Moses' comments and the um, uh, concerning the vaccine. Right now, I'm I'm very concerned that uh, people have access to the vaccine, as we saw in Florida uh, a couple of months ago when um, in Palm Beach when. Folks were allowed to just fly in the rich and the wealthy and become get themselves vaccinated, while you saw pers- persons in the Everglades without cars having to take a two-hour bus ride to get vaccinated. So I think at this time, uh, what concerns me most is that we have some type of equity with the distribution of vac- the vaccines in the United States as well as Moderna, since it was, uh, these, this vaccine was developed at a rapid pace. It's been very successful, but we also need to share with any pharmaceuticals globally that are able to produce this vaccine at this time, and especially our Caribbean brothers and sisters. We need to look at the success of Cuba in controlling COVID-19. We need to um, consider that if we vaccinate ourselves and fail to vaccinate folks in African and and other uh, on the continent, uh, that we failed ourselves because we will not have herd immunity. As you saw this week, Mexico had to close up the very successful and popular Chichen Itza pyramids because the tourists are flying in and refusing to wear masks. And subsequently, not only because of tourism but other factors, Mexico now has over has nearly a hundred thousand dead. And uh, you, you know this concerns me. You look at the what's happening in Ethiopia, what's happening in Egypt. Uh, uh, Morocco, Tunisia, you know, the high mortality rate due to COVID-19. So what concerns me is that the producers and the discoverers like Moderna and Pfizer not consider this intellectual property, but consider it a humanitarian effort and make all uh, global qualified pharmaceutical companies able to produce this vaccine for others, not 
as, because Moderna says, as they've said, uh, we, we will look the other way at our intellectual property rights right now. No, no, don't look away. Open up and share with everyone so that we can get this pandemic under control. The other thing that concerns me is the attack on voter. Again, uh, what's happening in Georgia is outrageous. Texas is on the way. This is an outrage. What is happening is it's voters' rights, but I feel that it's okay to say that it's black voter rights, African-American voter rights. I don't know what's happening in this country where so many people can come here and make themselves successful. Why we still, as African-Americans, are subjugated, and how can we be an anomaly when we've been here for 401 years? And uh, so, again, I hope that anyone and everyone registers to vote. Uh, I hope that we learn that everywhere we vote, there are different uh, procedures and the municipality where you vote controls how you vote. For example, in the District of Columbia, if you are not registered to a party, you can't vote in primaries. In D.C., generally, whoever wins the primary wins the uh, the election, not, not only the primary election, but they win in the general election. In Texas, for example, you have open primaries. So depending on where you live affects what your responsibilities and duties are as a voter. I feel very fortunate in the District of Columbia in that you simply have to have your voter registration card and you're able to vote. In other parts of this country, you're required to have your ID. Uh, People are carrying in mail to show they still live at the address. And this is a real outrage. And in order for our country to remain successful or to be successful, it's time for the top 10 who have made so much money during this pandemic to share with others, to give up their privilege and to share with others for the, for the not only the pharmaceuticals, but the wealthy individuals as well, to share their wealth to share the intellectual information that they have concerning uh, producing the vaccine, that's for the pharmaceuticals. The wealthy need to share with the poor. Right now I understand that Johnson & Johnson's vaccine is being administered in Chicago and other places to the homeless simply because, or the very poor, simply because it's difficult for them to schedule a second shot. Uh, I'm glad to see that happening. However, if we would address the issue of homelessness, since it's something we've been living with now for decades, uh, we wouldn't have this problem in the future because the world is changing. And if America continues to let its people live in the street, we are a disgrace to ourselves. We're forgetting what Jesus said. When we help the least among us, we help, we serve him. So let's try to get that on the road, Brother Africa, and thank you for allowing me to speak. Thank you, Sister Lenore. Yes, I want to make a quick comment. 
Yes, go ahead. Go ahead, brother. Quick comment, someone? Okay, what we're going to do right now, we're going to take a quick station break, and when we come back, we will continue the discussion on what's going on in your world community, and we'd like to invite you to call in and share with us what's going on in your world and the community. This is Africa on the Move. singing ensemble from North Carolina. We are the cultural arm of worker and civil rights organization Black Workers for Justice. Um, we came in from Raleigh, North Carolina, from Jacksonville, North Carolina, from Durham, um, and we're here because we support and we are part of the labor movement, but also part of the environmental justice movement too. We are with UE150, the North Carolina Public Service Workers Union, local of the United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers of America. In our communities, we fight on the job, but we also see the need to fight in our communities. There is no distance between the two. If we want justice on our jobs, we have to fight for justice in our communities. A lot of our communities face um, environmental hazards. Uh, some of us come from communities that have super fun sites in the middle of them. Some of us are part of organizations, environmental organizations that fight against coal ash ponds, that fight, that are currently fighting against the um, Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which will come through predominantly of colors, communities of color, black and Native American communities. Um, so we're fighting against that. We're fighting against hog farms, uh, proliferation in North Carolina, and the dumping in our streams from being contaminated from hog farms. So we see the intersections between workers being poisoned on the job and workers being poisoned in our communities. We want to close with a song. So we wrote a song, Fruit of Labor wrote a song uh, about water contamination based upon struggles that were going on in North Carolina. So we're going to do a little bit of it right now. Okay. It's called Justice Flowing Down Like Water. Family drank from a deep clear well to the hearts and moved underground. Now the only story left to tell is innocence lost in community action. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all, justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Little girl don't read so well, there's a lot that she'll never see. Some say it's the mercury in the fish of mama heat. Power plants causing you and me, justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. 
dissent when society, you talk about those authors who stated that if you can get three, four, five percentage of the population to to be active, which which in this sense seems like ruling by the minority, you can maybe many times change, bring about changes to your desire. Now, given that reality, even though it may not necessarily be that percentage, but we do know that it's the squeaking wheel that make the most noise. Many times when you can see a few people make some noise, um, people can turn that into look at turn that into a perspective of this is what the people want. Now, my question to you and our, our political panelists is, how do we overcome that game? Because that seems to be a game that they've been playing ever since the inception of the creation of the U.S. government. Is that they create this, this, this concept, the deception of um, discontent, and then they tell you that you know this is what we need to do in order to keep make the people um, satisfied. So how can we avoid that kind, those kind of games that you do to, not only by the author, but also by the games that the CIA and other intelligence agencies play on a daily basis against the people? Brother Haki, well, Before I respond to that, can I respond briefly to uh, Sister Eleanor's, some, some, some things I think maybe uh, Sister Eleanor uh, might want to contemplate in terms of her analysis? This is why we're here, to give information, inform our people so we make better choices. Okay, here, all, right, all, right, here's, here, all right, here's the thing. All right, in terms of, you know, uh, herd, herd uh, immunity, one of the things we got to understand that historically, when we talk about herd immunity, essentially what we're talking about is the human adaptation to, to various kind of viruses. So when we talk about influenza, over time, eventually people adapt to that particular, particular virus in its, in its molecular structure. Now, what happened is the World Organization uh, just last, uh, about eight months ago, changed the definition of herd immunity, and it says that in order to achieve herd immunity, you've got to have, take, take a vaccine. Uh, so it's very interesting politically when you think about it, why is it this change in terms of the definition of herd immunity? Why is it that you must take the vaccine? So why is, how is that a prerequisite in terms of uh, acquiring herd immunity when history has always been Herd immunity is something that evolved in human beings in terms of ability to fight off infection. So I think that's something that you have to be concerned about in terms of that definition in terms of herd immunity. Secondly, Bill Gates uh, stipulated um, uh, that a second round of vaccines must be given in Africa. And in fact, one of the biggest struggles is have in terms of the vaccine, I mean, the refrigeration of vaccines to make sure they don't go bad. So clearly his motivation is one of money, not necessarily in terms of the health of the people. And because it's health, the health of the people is not primary, you've got to be very concerned in terms of real motivations in terms of what he's doing and why he's doing it. And thirdly, one of the things when we talk about the vaccine's effectiveness, uh, one of the things that's interesting, they, 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 they're assessed at different levels of effectiveness. And so when you start talking about one vaccine is 80% effective, another is 90% effective, another is 91% effective, the question becomes, you know, uh, so, so how you define effective? I mean, if you have all these variances in terms of what, what qualifies as effective, then clearly there are some questions in terms of, you know, whether or not these, these vaccines are, are, are capable of doing what they are uh, 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 exposed, or at least what people allege they, they're capable of doing. So clearly, you know, there were was, there was some problems. And, and one of the things when you talk about the effectiveness in terms of Cuba, and you talk about the use of, of interferon medications in terms of keeping down the incidences of COVID-19, uh, that doesn't get much play. So clearly we've got to be very, very concerned in terms of political implications in terms of COVID-19 and not simply conclude uh, that uh, that's the society, that people's positions of power 
are are are, are um, or um, guided by morality. I think that's the first mistake we make when we start thinking that power is somehow uh, uh, power is somehow uh, okay with, uh, with 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 morality. Uh, in fact, when you talk about the immorality of power, one thing is very very clear: uh, power and morality don't go together. They're, they're the opposite extremes, and so people who practice power don't practice morality because there's no power in morality. And so, therefore, we got to be very clear. So when we talk about these vaccines and they have various, various effectiveness, uh, then we got to be really concerned about what they're really saying when they say this vaccine is, is this effective, this one is that effective, that one is that effective. So what does that really mean in the final analysis? But to answer your question, Brother Africa, you know, uh, you know how, how do you address this question in terms of you know, this, this propaganda? It's very difficult to do. You know, recently in, in the U.K., um, Tony Sewell, a, a representative of the government, uh, of Boris Johnson's government, he issued a report and he said that um, racism in the U.K. is, is, is a minimum. In fact, it's just not a real issue. He uh, says it's a very, very small issue. And so for him to conclude a report saying that in the U.K. that racism is not an issue, I mean, it's, it's, it speaks to it, 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 it speaks to to the power of, of of opportunism that exists among individuals who understand that they say the right things or or produce the right kind of reports. Then wealthy people in certain would ensure them a job, show them huge wages, and so 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 it's that kind of incentive in terms of actually lying about stuff because it's all about the bottom line for a lot of people. So clearly, the question. So the question: What do you do in terms of how you prevent this? I mean, you really you really can't. People have to become, in, become knowledgeable in terms of what's going on. But people have to read. One of the things people don't want to hear, age of Internet or the, the age of enlightenment, in, in, in not the age of in, in being uh, titillated, uh, people have to understand that, you know, we have to, uh, you know, we have to sort of employ those old school values in which we have another resource to read. Because we got to keep in mind, everything that we read, most of it, um, and some scientists estimate, uh, 80% of what we read is propaganda. And so if that's the reality, then if we don't seek information, then there's no way possible for us to discern what's real and what's not. And so when they come out with these reports like 3.5% of the population, you know, you to bring about change, then clearly, you know, when you look at the continent of Africa in terms of the struggles of Africa, uh, there's only been three countries that implemented civil disobedience that brought about change. And I believe those three countries were um, um, uh, Burundi, um, Burundi, um, Liberia, and the third one slips my mind. Uh, anyway, uh, those are the only three countries in Africa that uh, actually was civil, civil disobedience were able to bring about political change in society. And this notion that somehow that when she, when she says that, you know, uh, peaceful protests are 53, uh, 53% of the time as opposed to armed struggles 26% of the time, I don't know where she get those statistics from because if you look at just the continent of Africa alone, and so if you talk about out of 54 countries, only three came about getting their freedom through civil disobedience, then clearly statistically, then uh, I don't know what you could do statistics from. But anyway, uh, the whole point is that people uh, get all kinds of stuff get uh, published, uh, and, and lots of it is, 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 is merely for public consumption. And it's nothing to do in terms of actually educating people or, or, or uh, in, 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 in enhancing people's understanding of the world. It's more geared toward getting people to state of mind in which they're comfortable with, they're, they're complacent in terms of the way things are. And so if you can provide information which tends to put people to sleep, then people in positions of power benefit from that because of, of people who are asleep is a people who can never resist. And so clearly, the, so when you ask the question, what can we do to stop this, that's what we can do to stop it, Brother Africa, because we don't control the media apparatus. Uh, 
it's very much in the hands of uh, three giant corporations, and these are very right-wing organizations. And so, therefore, they got a vested interest in, in producing information that's fallacious, that's, that, in fact, has no basis in terms of reality, but is very good in terms of conditioning people to believe, you know, uh, that, that everything is fine, there's no problem, just relax, everything is okay. So clearly that's something you can do in terms of other than to educate yourself by reading uh, to dispel a lot of these misconceptions that the media puts out. Okay, Brother Moses and Marvin, I would like to get y'all, I'd like to get y'all feedback, your assessment on this narrative that's going on, how they're dealing with the death of George Floyd. I mean, it seems like, you know, we have seen this many times, and probably we can we can take an educated guess and can figure out what the outcome would be, 99.999%. What do y'all make of how the media is covering, how they are covering the death of George uh, George Floyd, and um, what can we learn from what we have seen so far that we don't already know? You first, you take you take a stab at it first, Brother Moses. Did my when you follow Brother Moses? Brother Moses, what's your take? Yeah. Well, this 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 trial is uh, uh, I'm captivating the minds of many of a person. Uh, certainly, you know. The ideological struggle for socialism in a communal world is uh, takes place on a lot of different levels, and especially for the hearts and minds of the people we're competing for to see things our way. And uh, um, this trial, I don't know. Uh, I I have a special relationship to this trial because I was in the hospital. Uh, when this happened, and uh, so I, I, my, I, it hasn't impacted me uh, the same way possibly as it as it probably could have uh, had I been in the streets. Uh, but anyway, uh, I'm not sure what to say. It just for let me just let it go right there. Thank you. Okay, Marvin, give me your your thought on this narrative that's playing out. How they dealing with this case? Okay, and before I get to that, I, I want to piggyback on something Brother Haki said that I think is vitally important. Um, last week I happened, and, I, and I, I can't give you the actual number, but there's a Pew Research report that I was reading last week that kind of addresses one of the problems that we have uh, and 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 being able to overcome and to bring the necessary changes. And, 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 I, and I've used the term miseducation. But there's also a level of consciousness and awareness. And in this Pew report, one of the things that stuck out to me, and it was based on religion, and how religion is used uh, as a way of keeping people uh, from making progress. And, and what was interesting, and not to but because it dealt with Christianity, it gave some striking numbers, something to the effect of 77% of, of black, Chris, black Christians go to church and attend Bible study on a regular basis, but yet only 20% of the Europeans do that, okay? So there's a big, big disconnect because if you're held to uh, a certain consciousness, a, a certain awareness, 
certain teachings that that goes against everything that you have to do to obtain power, then we, you can never obtain power. The, the, the other thing I want to address that the sister said that I just want to bring out that I think we have to be aware of, that to expect the Europeans to share power with us, it's not going to happen, okay? Uh, what you're asking someone to do is to uh, give away to someone else what they have always had. And one of the things that, that we see, especially even now, is that the European is definitely afraid of what would happen if they are not in power. So they are definitely not in the mood to share power, okay? Now, the, the George Floyd thing, and again, it, it, from my perspective, is based on a person's level of consciousness and awareness. The, the trial, if you're looking at it on TV, is, you know, they're showing you. But the individual, our individual reactions is based upon where are you in your terms of level of consciousness, okay? Uh, you know, they are trying to show you through this trial on TV what supposedly is a just system. But what I see is an unjust system. So one has to ask, where are they in their in their level of consciousness and awareness? Because people are going to see these things differently from that from that perspective. But if all they know is what they have been taught, and we must understand, especially in this country as well as other countries, our level of edu- so-called education, which is really indoctrination and training is to be taught to only understand things from one perspective, and that's a Eurocentric perspective. So if you break out into a, what I say is a true African perspective to understand that there's only two things, right and wrong, but because if you buy into uh, all of the propaganda that we are fed, about justice and righteousness, and we have the greatest system in the world, and you are looking at it, people are getting confused because they, a lot of people, are, as they are saying in the news media, that, oh, he has a chance to get off because all they have to do is to put, in, and according to the defense, what the defense is doing, is to cause doubt in one person's mind that, something other than the knee on George Floyd's neck caused his death, okay? And it, what kind of justice is that? If, you, if the level of consciousness is, I think, is where an individual uh, let us know what they are thinking. And my level of consciousness, it says that it's right and wrong. And what the media is doing is, showing you but this trial but what do you understand about this system that we live under and and based on that your perspective is going to rule i'd like to hear your take on what are you receiving from 
the way they are presenting the George Floyd trial. Is there anything that you can learn from that? What's your take on it? Uh, what, what is my take? Well, no, this is Eleanor. The, the, yes, go ahead, this is Eleanor. Yeah, I I think that uh, the jurors by having so many white male jurors that 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 seems to be uh, that doesn't demonstrate justice to me. I think that uh, that creates a problem, and the attack on George Floyd's character is is just ridiculous, and to suggest that. He has these underlying health issues that were the cause of his death is outrageous. That means all of us need to stay home because we may be diabetic, we may be have asthma, and if we have an encounter with the police, we'll end up dead. When I saw that first video of George Floyd and the officer's knee on his neck, and I saw urine flowing from under the truck, I knew at that moment I was watching a dead man and an officer sitting there with the man dead and not moving. And that was, when I say the man not moving, I'm not talking about George Floyd. I'm talking about the two officers that chose to put their knees on George Floyd. Why would anyone do that? Why would this why would anyone be trained to do something like this to another human being? What type of restraint is this? Over a counterfeit twenty dollar bill, really? I, I just think that, that this is this is outrageous. I I I pray, all I can do is pray that this man is convicted for the sake of our country and the sake of 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 all African American and Native American people, we deserve justice. We don't need to see. We we we've seen Moo in Philadelphia. What happened to them? We we saw Wounded Knee. Where is justice for Black lives? And this country, this panelist of jurors, has an opportunity to do what is correct. However. I haven't been viewing the trial on television. I've I've seen a few moments of it, and it seemed to be uh, uh, the only thing that came to my mind was the the panelists of jurors. And when they went through the voir dire, were there any African-American men that could have been jurors? When they went through the voir dire, uh, what questions were asked? And why were these white males placed on the jury panel? How did the, both the defense and the prosecutor agree upon these jurors? And this is something I don't think the public will know because they don't show us the voir They're showing us the trial. And it, it, it is, uh, um, I'm sure it's, something that many people are watching, but it's too heartbreaking for me to watch. I'm just hoping that justice is served and this man is convicted for the murder of George Floyd. Thank you, Sister Norm. We're now bringing in Brother Anthony, and we'd like to get his take. Brother Anthony, what observations and lessons you are learning from how this trial is being presented, dealing with 
the death of George Floyd? Uh, let's see. Uh, well, uh, one thing that that's, uh, that strikes me is the uh, is the attention it's getting from the uh, corporate media, especially. And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, they, um, you know, there's a tendency uh, on the part of uh, of that sector of the media to put their spin on things. And I'm hoping that enough alternative media get to uh, provide coverage of this situation as well. Uh you know, because I think that's going to be uh, be key in terms of how events are interpreted, and um, you know, and uh, you know, and uh, you know, and and that's critical. And um, you know, I find it interesting that um, you know that uh, you know that there there were hardly any African males selected to serve on the jury. So uh you know uh you, you know uh you know that's rather telling you know for me in terms of um you know uh you know how uh you know people's judgment may be slanted in a certain way Okay panelists on that note what we're going to do right now we're going to go down memory lane going down the past we're going to look at a critique of some things that were raised by Brother Dick Gregory as related to the Trump administration, Donald Trump. And we're going to try to apply it in today's context. Is there anything different that's going on from that administration to what we see so far with this one? So we'd like for you to listen in, and we would like to respond to this message of going back in the past. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Let me first say we thank and praise God that we have all made it here safely today. I pray to God that your return and my return will be equally as safe. Let me first say I'll, I'll be mentioning God, but I'm not talking about them isms and osms y'all talking about. And one day you will find out what the real thing is about. It's not about the church. When the Catholic Church elevated the first Polish cardinal to Pope, 1.5 million white folks left the church. I don't know nobody ever left a whole house because somebody came in they didn't like. And you youngsters, if you just remember one thing, stop letting us old folks tell you about how nothing you are because we the ones that left you this mess. We put a school together with a bunch of evil old men 
when you stop and think about a white woman didn't get the right to vote in America to 1921. And she came over on the boat with that boy. I said, boy, if you treat your mother like that, my mama better stay in the house. <laughs> a white woman in America with a Ph.D. make 87 cents on the dollar compared to a white man. And that don't bother y'all? We give more money to foreign countries that we don't like just because they got minerals in the ground than we give taking care of our own. And they can do that when they keep you messed up with hatred and meanness and racism and prejudice and all of that. And let me first say to you white folks, I will be saying some things today about white folks, but I can guarantee you, oh wait, will y'all listen to me? I'll guarantee you I will not be talking about you. See, I advocate it ain't about 800 white folks on the whole planet and the rest of y'all is imposters. See, white is not a color, it's an attitude. And if you don't have trillions of dollars in the bank, you can't have the attitude. Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth make $360 million every 24 hours, just interest on her money. Now, them be white folks. <laughs> and if ever I took over the country, the first thing I would do is make all you black folks apologize to white folks, or you mad at the wrong white folks. The white folks you mad at couldn't help you if they liked you. I had a white dude ask me, well, how do you know if you real white folks? I said, well, you get up and call the Wall Street, and while you're talking, if you can't determine the stock going to go up or come down, you're not white. Hmm? Somewhere. And let me first say thank you for those of you all that worked to put this together. My job's easy. All I have to do is present a body. But for those of you all that put all the work together to make this happen, we say thank you. Secondly, let me say to those of you that do the physical part, who we never even see, the mic didn't just walk up here and the chairs didn't just, some human beings did this. And unbeknown to most of us, when we leave here today, someone will come here and straighten this place up. So for those of you that handles that, we say thank you, thank you, thank you. And somewhere, if we learn to say thanks to a whole lot of people that we don't see, you get 20 inches of snow tomorrow, and those folks you see clean it up, they're invisible until tomorrow. Invisible. Like I say, my job's easy. Somebody picked me up at the airport, somebody showing up gonna take me back. <laughs> Somewhere it's about the humanity. The humanity. We locked up into affluence and entertainers. When that universal God, not the church, picked you, it leaves no footprint. 
It don't give a damn about the New York Times or the Washington Post or Time Magazine or NBC or CBS. The real ones. There's people in this room now that have done more for the humanities on this planet than 99% of all your athletes and entertainers put together. It wasn't entertainers and athletes or the church that made it possible for you women to sit here in this school next to men in this America. And we're always arguing about something. And let me just stop and apologize to white folks. I was stupid enough to believe that all black folks looked alike to white folks. I, I ain't going to lie. I believed it until Obama become president. And I haven't, I haven't had one white person walk up to me and say, uh, excuse me, Mr. President. <laughs> so I know we don't all look alike. And secondly, let me say to black educators, I apologize because I've had 50 honorary doctor's degree from black colleges. In fact, I'm 80 years old. I still had that Negro stuff up here. So I said, it won't be right until I can just get me one honorary degree from a white college. So I wrote white colleges where I could never heard from none. Until last month, Penn State called me. And said, we'd like to give you an honorary doctor's degree. I said, no, thank you. Somewhere. I have been married 55 years. Oh, wait. I didn't say I was happy. What the hell's wrong with you? We have left a mess because in this country, white folks and black folks lie to you because they don't want to lose a job, but they believe in God. Hmm? We give you stuff that we know is corrupt. We, we create schools to teach you how to make a living, and the universal God said you better learn how to live. And if you didn't have a good example, you got one now. Steve Jobs died. He had $300 billion in his personal private checking account and couldn't make 58 years old. I got an old trifling thug cousin in St. Louis. <laughs> Drank cheap wine, stayed drunk all the time. He can't read, he can't write. Ain't never had a job, but he 101. Steve, Steve should have followed him. <laughs> Steve dead, 300 billion in his personal. I called my cousin this morning just to make sure he was still kicking. <laughs> so we left you young folks a big mess. That you either change it. Well, have fun and have fun quick, because recess is just about over. And the lies go so deep. If my mother was alive today, 
and walked into this room, you think God just fed her out. That's how precious and beautiful and spiritual she looks. But if you try to convince my mother that Jesus Christ wasn't a Christian, she'd stomp you to death. Because her ignorance didn't permit her to know that Christianity never started until 100 years after Jesus was dead. She didn't know that. She didn't know they killed his brother James the same way they killed him. Somewhere. King James, she didn't know King James was king of England. She didn't know King James was such a weird, strange homosexual. He hated women so bad he killed his mama. And his lover was Lord Buckingham, who Buckingham Palace is named after. But King James didn't lie. He didn't say this is God's version, Jesus' version, Christianity's version, Buddha's version. He said this is my version. And so if your brother wrote a book on his version on how to play basketball, I got a God intelligence to tell me, check him out first, then I'll understand his version. See, if your brother got no legs, his version going to be different. Hmm? Somewhere. Somewhere. And I don't know when you women going to understand who you are. Understand the power you are. It wouldn't be none of us on this planet if it wasn't for women, and yet they got you believing you came second. Huh? That old filthy story of Adam and Eve, are y'all crazy? Adam was here by himself. Y'all know the story. Adam, and then he, he said one day to God, God, I am lonely and when God didn't say, nigga, how can you be lonely when ain't nobody here but you? <laughs> he was here, nobody else. How he no lonely? But if you follow the story, here come Eve. They had Two sons, you know what I'm saying? Cain and Abel. One son killed the other one. So let, let's do this right. There's Adam and Eve. Put, put two fingers up. Then Cain and Abel. That's four. Then one boy killed the other one. Take one down. That's three. Then he went out and begot him a wife. <laughs> now you see where the word MF come from, huh? Well, don't look so strange. You count it. <laughs> it's three people. Him, dad, and mom. Somewhere. You Christians, y'all trip. I know because I'm one. You Christians are a trip. I shall not kill. Except war. Now, it didn't say that. But somebody told you. You go kill people you don't know. Never met. But it's okay because some rich, powerful human being said, here's what you, and you don't question nothing. Somewhere. 
somewhere. I can go all over the world, been all over many times, and I can recognize a prostitute. She look like a hoe, she act like a hoe, she believe like a hoe. No, the question is, if I can recognize a whore without her telling me, how come if you don't tell me you're a Christian, I don't know you one? I go to jail and speak all over the world. Strange thing. How come there are no atheists on death row? What is it about people that don't believe in God, don't kill folks? But you go to war. Saying prayers, you can come back. Let me kill him and get it over with. Somewhere. You don't care nothing about poor folks. Even poor folks don't care nothing about poor folks. Hmm? Oh, wait, it, it always want something free. I have a business, I have a company. I can take five hoes today all over the world, and as long as I call them hoes my secretary, it's a tax write-off. All these big restaurants that you go to and you can't afford to go. Manhattan, all over the world. Those are tax write-offs. Huh? First class, you get on a damn plane. I came back from London, France the other day. My first class ticket cost $10,000 more than the economy. And most of us wouldn't be up there if we couldn't write that off on our income tax. You love to pick on POFA, but you're not going to mess with people with power because they'll hurt you. Huh? Fear. Scared of everything. Sitting here in this college going to take, take a damn test and you scared. Do you know fear and God don't occupy the same space? A damn book that's dead. Huh? You can create another human being. That's the power you have. That book can't produce one page. And you scared and nervous? I know you. I, was, I went to college. I was there. People were scared. Said, well, you're so cool. Cool. Well, I mean, what you can do? You can't do nothing but flunk me. And you smart people. I don't understand you. I walked in the class my first day in college, took the test, read it. I see I didn't know anything, so I signed it and left. <laughs> you dumb fuck. You know those dumb fuck when they take a test? They put the pencil in their mouth like they thinking. Hold their head. You dumb. <laughs> Just find the paper and leave. And you smart people, you really a trip. Helene Tucker, she was the smartest person I ever met in school. I sit there two minutes and left, waiting on her just to wave at her. She come out two and a half hours later. Said, she must really be dumb. I said, how you do? She nervous. I, 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 I don't know. I, I got to wait till the grade. They posted grades three days later. She made straight A's. You know how dumb you got to be to make straight A's and don't know it? <laughs> Somewhere. Fear and God do not occupy the same place. We like to whack even went back to Africa on the moon. We are going down the past, living in the rain. 
Brother Dick were raising some critique in reality of the society. To our political panelists and you, the audience, uh, we would like for you to weigh in on, as he spoke about many contradictions that we see on a daily basis, how do we address these contradictions because they seem to be going from one generation to the, to to the to another, and there's no 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 push to correct these errors and contradictions. Brother Haki, when you heard Brother Dick, what were some of the contradictions that stood out, and how do we rectify some of these contradictions? I think he was very pointed when he started out his presentation, where he called the church a whole house. Pamela, you think he went too far in his description of the church. Brother Hackey, you start us all. Well, I, I, I think there's no question. Uh, you know, the kind of information that uh, should be uh, um, relatively available for the, for, the, for the congregants is simply lacking. And so, therefore, there's a bit of opportunism that exists with respect to the past in terms of the kind of message that they present. Often these messages are very critical of poor people, but at the same token, uh, are very mediocre when it comes to critique concerning wealthy people. And so in that regard, you know, it seems that a lot of these pastors elevate uh, 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 the fear of, of, of wealth over the power of the creation, even though they say that they are, they're, uh, they're, they're heavily into, uh, into, 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 into the religion. Uh, so clearly that is a problem in terms of the sort of hypocrisy that exists in the church, and I don't think anything's going to change that as long as the lure is money. So there's a popular incentive to keep telling people what they want to hear because those people in hearing what they want to hear are sure of making sure that uh, money is uh, presented uh, to the church. And so therefore, there's no real incentive for pastors to change. And certainly there's no incentive for the congregates to, uh, to want change simply because they're comfortable in terms of the message as it, as it currently exists. Uh, I think one of the things, so um, when you talk about in terms of keeping young people ill-informed, I think that's, that's a very critical issue. Uh, one of the things, you know, uh, you know, you know I, I remember, you know, people I grew up with, you know, we, we grew up at a time in which they said, well, listen, go to school, get that education, you know, get, you know, get in the system, become part of the system, and change it from within where a lot of people come to the realization that working within a system is not that simple, and so they opted to simply uh, 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 to, to work within that system without trying to affect any kind of change. And in the process, what they did was opposed to critiquing the system and getting younger people, their children in particular, saying that the system is corrupt from the top to the bottom, and to get them illustrations, to get them, let them know precisely what they're up against in terms of trying to transform the system, they gave the illusion that the system was fine, there was no problems, that I've got a nice house, a nice car, you know, and a nice bank account, so everything is fine. So son, daughter, be like me, you know, because everything is fine, the system is great. And because we convey that kind of sentiment, that those kind of messages, clearly we got a, a whole group of young people who are so ill-informed who don't have a clue in terms of reality, in terms of what's going on. Even as, as the situation is um, uh, threatening our existence as a people on this planet, a lot of us young people don't have a clue. I was looking at uh, where well, actually a friend of mine was playing a video by this, this young this young brother uh, called uh, Nas Little Nas X something like that. In any event, uh, this 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 is a very, um, for lack of a better term, a very um, effectual, a very terminated uh, young man, um, and uh, the kind of things that he espousing in terms of. You know these exotic. I mean, this this, this these so-called exotic shoes with human blood in them, and this whole notion in terms of 
making love to Satan and all these kind of bizarre kinds of things. And historically, when you look in terms of African people, those kind of things would never been elevated to any, any kind of respectability. But here it is, you have this young black brother who's, who's committed uh, because apparently his parents didn't teach him certain, certain values, certain mores in terms of what it is to be an African in the society, who have internalized all the wrong kinds of values. And so when he started talking about making love to the devil and then taking over, then it speaks to a kind of internalization of the broader society which says that the more thing that matters in the society is power. So clearly that's a problem. So, but that's the direct result of people of our generations who refuse to teach, uh, to teach the children the truth. So they don't have a foundation. So without a foundation, it's damn impossible for them to work together to create, uh, to uh, protect themselves against any particular harms that may be, be coming their way in the future. So clearly uh, here I think he's absolutely correct. Uh, to a large extent, we, we have sold out. And we're reaping the, the, the price as a result of selling out. So clearly, I think uh, Dick Eric had a point there. Okay. Brother Moses, he raised a really interesting point in his um, presentation where he said that whiteness is not a color, it's an attitude. How do you interpret that? Do you buy into that, Brother Moses? Whiteness is not a color, it's an attitude. Brother Moses, the mic is yours. And while we wait for Brother Moses to speak to it, we also can raise with, with Brother Anthony. How do you interpret that? Yeah, I Brother Moses, yeah. Okay, Brother yeah. Moses. And you were saying, what now? About the... How, how do you interpret the statement that Dick Gregory made that whiteness... It's not a color. It's an attitude. Right. So I agree right. that most people are not white. That's that's a misnomer. It's a kind yeah. of type of attitude, a type of value, right. type of. What's your well, thought on that? Most people don't have the don't have the economic clout it takes to be so-called white, um, and, and in terms of the white power structure, etc. Um, basically. Uh, a superiority complex um, seems to be the bottom line in terms of this this um, self consciousness or something. Uh, uh, if one thinks more of themselves than they should, and um, I don't know, it's, this is this um, it's not my forte. Uh, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Okay. Brother Anthony, your response to that statement? Brother Anthony? Uh, yes. Uh, I think in terms of describing whiteness as an attitude rather than an ethnicity, I think what, uh, what Dick Gregory was alluding to was, uh, you know, was the, the class struggle. In other, in other words, he was talking specifically about the European bourgeoisie, which is a very small sector of the European population overall. And the bourgeoisie uh, worldwide is a very small sector of, uh, of the, 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 the ethnic group's population. And so in that sense, he was talking about the nation-class struggle in a sense. 
And uh, what he was re- was alluding to was the fact that uh, that this very small class of people is able, but they exert a large influence because they're able through control of the educational system and the media able to project their attitudes across a very wide center of the population that outnumbers them. And uh, and I think what he's alluding to and what has not changed to the present day is the fact that we're in a struggle between the haves and have-nots, and that struggle is intensifying. And I think that's what he he meant when he talked about an attitude as opposed to a color. And Brother Marwin, I'd like to get your interpretation on this issue that the system has the tendency to teach people how to make a living but not how to live. Why is it important? What is the difference between how to make a living versus how to live? What's your interpretation on that particular point, Brother Marwin? I mean, it really is not an interpretation. It's a fact. You know, if you, if you ever, those of us, and I used to be, have been a school teacher, to recognize that all they, all we do to prepare someone to do it is one of three things. Uh, go to work, go to college, and again, be prepared to work, or go in the military. So that's all education, what we call education. And it's not education, it's training and indoctrination. So I am totally with them on that. You know, once you learn to live uh, and understand what education really is, the word education comes from the word educe. Educe is about knowing yourself, okay? So you educate yourself. And so in educating yourself, you begin to understand how to live. We don't teach them how to live. We teach them how to get a job or be prepared to take care of themselves through uh, which we live under this capitalistic system. So that's where we are. Uh, I would say, and to go back to to what you just asked about uh, the the issue of uh, whiteness being an attitude, you know, one of the things we have to recognize, too, is that white folks have been, the European has been miseducated, and, and, and purposefully so, because, you know, we have had laws on the books in this country uh, in which uh, made it so that even those who are Europeans who had some humanity within themselves to try to bring about uh, equitable change, that they had laws on the books that say that they couldn't do that. And it was it's important that the powers to be keep those people in that mindset that you may not have, but it's better to be white than it is to be black. And, you know, I mean, there's a number of documents and studies and books that that, that have been around for hundreds of years that, that verifies that. So, uh, yeah, the basic uh, of, of your question is is that we do not teach, okay, 
And, and that goes back to another point, that is power. We do not teach people about power. And, and when it is taught, it's taught in the manner of those who already have it, and it's never taught in the way of how do we wrestle power from those who have it so that we can bring about the change in the system. So a lot of this is to, to maintain the system, and I said earlier, if you're not careful, you will be educated and you, to be your own oppressor, to allow this system and want to maintain the system that oppresses you. You won't want to change it because you become too comfortable and you've been educated into it. Thank you, my brother. And Sister Eleanor, when you talk about the relationship between God and Phil, when you talk about also this whole whole, whole question of um, this whole question of King James um, telling his version, and when you talk about you know this the dichotomy of um, there's a tendency where Christians has a greater greater behavior of killing more so than non-Christians or those who are not Christians. What you make of that, Sister Eleanor? Um. Oh. Okay. Am, uh, can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Hello. Yes, we can hear um, you. Um, Dick Gregory's comments. I think that he was uh, uh, most importantly dealing with the issue of class struggle, and I think that his discussion of the King James version of the Bible and that sort of thing. It just makes me think off of the top of my head that the first six chapters of the Bible are the first six chapters of the Quran. They're the first six chapters of the Jewish book. I think it's called the Talbot. So uh, something remains, something remains pure in the Bible. And, and, and there are many versions of the Bible. So I hope we're not all relying on the Bible but in terms of class struggle and race in this country, they're, they're, when you reach a certain level, if you're, uh, you, 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 you can uh, essentially, I find more people, you know, because I've lived so long, and Dick Gregory mentioned that, that I've seen uh, the definition of race and uh, change in my lifetime, but it had a lot to do with class. And uh, so I see people, brown people, I see yellow people. I, I, I was with a, a woman recently from China and a woman from Guatemala and myself, and there was a white woman who described us as women of color. Now, the woman from China was shocked that she was described as a woman of color and was wondering who she was talking about. She thought she was only addressing me and ignoring them. And I had to remind them that you, a yellow woman, and you, my sister from Guatemala, are a brown woman, and I am an Afro-American woman, and she was a white woman. And and this was in a legal setting. Uh, the The Asian woman was an attorney. The Anglo woman was an attorney. And we were in a legal setting. However, to get back to your point, 
I don't have much to say about the King James Version of the Bible. I just know that in my religious practice, I'm just glad that the one billion of us every day share the same scripture and read the same prayers in many languages around the world. And it makes me think of the Pope today. Today, when he went out, he talked about one nation, and he made a comment in Latin, one nation and one world. I I think it's spelled U-R-B-I, and then the second word is E-2, and I think the third word is O-R-B-I. One nation, but there's really one world and how we must serve each other. And again, he was even speaking about the vaccine and um, making it available. And one thing I want to share, Brother Africa, that we didn't mention this evening was what's happening in Manatee, Florida, and that there is a a risk of a contaminated uh, pond or uh, waterways flooding a community in Manatee, and over 300 families were evacuated from their homes. And when you talk about capitalism, one woman had saved and and bought this, uh, but it was a brand-new home, and had never known that there was this environmental hazard. And since 2011, Florida knew about the potential of uh, this water seepage, and the corporation hadn't been held accountable or anyone else. I just see uh, the issue as a class struggle when it becomes race. And many people now uh, call themselves white who who aren't white. I've been shocked when I've been in the room and I was thinking, well, does DNA count? And uh, it, it, it's quite interesting, but that's not what Dick was talking about. I think Dick was really talking about class struggle, um, He did it in a very graphic way, but that's uh, Dick Gregory. It sounded, uh, you know, the way he describes women, it was unfortunate, but it got the message across. And it's clear that depending on your class and your income, all your expenses are written off while the rest of us are struggling just to put food on our table, educate our children, and put a roof over our heads. And I hope that the educational system is now educating people to work because I feel like Malcolm X. They bought us here to work. The problem is getting paid. So my issue is that people um, earn incomes, livable wages. I hope through this pandemic we've learned one thing that Dick mentioned. He talked about the snow and suddenly the invisible become visible. Well, this pandemic has taught us how valuable grocery store workers are, how valuable bus drivers are, how valuable so many people are, the people that sweep the street every day, even though there's a pandemic, so that we have a clean sidewalk to walk down. The garbage man that's at work never stopped. So I I see... uh, This is a time to raise the quality of life for frontline workers, for there to be more equity in terms of wages so that people can live comfortably. One thing America knew at one time, and I think Biden is uh, addressing, is that 
the rich can do no better than the poor. If we don't have an infrastructure that will sustain everyone, we don't have an infrastructure that's going to sustain anyone. So th- this this Biden plan, this new uh, plan that he's come up with supporting the infrastructure, he's even looking at the infrastructure as people, you know, health care workers, the workers who care for the elderly. President Biden is talking about their wages and the very thing I'm talking about, grocery store workers having decent wages you know, making sure we have strong unions and and rebuilding our our workforce by rebuilding America. And the only way to do this is by uh, educating the masses and uh, not only employing the masses, but making sure people have livable wages where they can enjoy what's uh, available in society, making sure that people have Internet access that we're not watching two televisions. One person has cable and another one just living under the tyranny of the three big corporate uh, media conglomerates. You know, we don't all need to be Rupert Murdoch puppets. You know, we need what you're doing right now, Brother Africa, with this podcast, and we need more alternative uh, news so that as, Brother Anthony and the other gentleman said so that we can get true facts and know what's going on. And everyone has made me think of an old book, less than 200 pages. It's called The Miseducation of the Negro. And it was written by Carter G. Woodson in 1929. And I think it's worth reading. It's something you can read in a day, and I may read it again myself. But uh, again, I think Dick... Dick's comments focused on uh, what I got from it was frontline workers, you know, the, the the people who plow the snow, the people who clean the streets. They're the people that we need to make sure they're paid reasonably and well and have insurance and uh, life insurance, health care, all the things that they need to be successful. Because when one person's life is improved, everyone's life is improved. I truly believe that. So I I, I hope that we can um, uh, deal with the issue of, of, of um, equity in society and deal with the reality of class struggle and, and, and that there is a huge digital divide that has create, created an economic divide in this country right now. There are many people with knowledge, but if they don't have computer skills and, they don't, and they're not familiar with the IT community resources, uh, they're just out of the game right now. So it's, it's a strange time in society. It's a real... Uh, this pandemic has really changed the way we live. I have neighbors who are making a living in their apartment because they're on their computers and they know what to do. And I have neighbors who are unemployed because of the pandemic. So, you know, I see class struggle as the issue. I see getting this pandemic and the new variances. I see the necessity for 
inoculating people globally. Unfortunately, we can't, uh, it's true the CDC changed the herd immunity uh, uh, concept so that we can't just wait this, this pandemic out because millions already have died in this country, a half a million people. In, in Mexico, 100,000. In Brazil, 200,000. You know, in South Africa, over 50,000. And uh, I think in Morocco or Egypt, about 11,000. Raging. So um, uh, this is an example of class struggle, and we're now having this nationalism that's popping up where people are thinking of serving themselves instead of thinking of others. Now, India is who gets most vaccines out to developing countries. So what I'm hoping is that Moderna and Pfizer, when they produced all the vaccines that we can use and their excess vaccines available, that they be given to nations throughout the world, no matter what their political philosophy and I do think we need to embrace Cuba because Cuba has had a great success in fighting this pandemic itself. So there are many things we can learn from Cuba, but we should also be assisting Cuba if it needs so with the uh, with the pandemic. And um, again, thank you. I, I'm sorry if I'm not. Uh, 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 I, I paid attention to Dick's uh, comments, and I think they were very insightful. And uh, he definitely uh, 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 was inspirational with that discussion of uh, the Bible. But just remember those first six books and and that we all, no matter what religion or uh, whether we're Muslim or Jewish or Christians, we read the same six books from the Bible, whether it's the King James Version or the Quran's Version. It's exact word for word. I'm not a biblical scholar, so I can't speak further on the subject. And I do not use the King James Version of the Bible for my Bible study. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor, and you are correct. This evening they had this reservoir in Florida, the bus that was um, containing um, contaminated waters. And one of the things I'd like to just highlight to that point is I think that's something we need to be aware of throughout the country because we have a lot of, as Sister Eleanor said earlier, we have a lot of infrastructure that need updating and improve. And there seems to be a struggle to not to want to do that. So what happened today in Florida can't happen in your neighborhood, maybe tomorrow, with all of these uh, infrastructure that need updating and need improvement. And, again, if they can't make money out of it, hey, you know, we end up paying for it. But anyway, this is Alpha Going to Move. What we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for the calls. We're going to take a revolutionary culture break, and when we come back, We'll talk about some interesting articles that came out last week in the magazine Telesur. Uh first article we're gonna talk about education. Should we see that as a human right as we begin discussing our theme tonight? 
people are talking. People are talking about all kinds of things. And one thing we can say is the first step is at least, at least talk about it, acknowledge it. So we just want to share some perspective with you on some of the things that people are talking about. When we come back, and we just like to tell you, again, join us by calling 323-679-0841. Hit one, and we'd love to hear your views and comments. You are listening to the Voice of Africa on the Move, Brother Africa, and we'll be right back, and we're going to talk about some things that people are talking about. Right now, we're going to take you to Mama Africa. Napoleon, the legend. Let's get the bell radio. 
conspiracy theorists. What if Martin had Twitter and all that civil rights talk, man? I wouldn't want to hear it. This integration been disintegrating. Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation. His last speech got him assassinated. Black business was booming. We wasn't just a consumer. Controlling our narrative. We have more marriages. And see what the damage did. They ain't that bad a bitch. And welfare did us way worse than the slavery. I'll never be an agent. I don't care what they pay me. Seem like Nip had the same old story. If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory. Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was a mystery. Supremacy will go the extent to keep their history alive. All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive, who be on the internet trying to divide? And use a hotel hustler, trying to be a people of that low vibe structure. Agree to disagree, and we ain't got to tear our own down. Argue or silence, or forever be our own downfall. All I want to say is that we're giving it away. Soul ain't for sale, and the devil is a fake. Argue with the silence, but don't let it seal our fate. Fight behind doors, but don't ever show our face. Cause if mom had Twitter, mom come had Twitter. It be our own people do the trolling. Spill ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Cause if mom had Twitter, then Malcolm had Twitter. It be our own people do the trolling. Spill ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Sometimes the key to life you're looking for be right in front of you. Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new. I said, what if we've been lied to most of our freaking lives? Every year coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right, your arrogance precedes you. What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic. Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry. Hieroglyphic writing on walls you couldn't take from me. A man lay dead in the street today. I must have bumped my head and landed in 1940 or something, I swear. And all I have is love and joy to give. I need to spread my wings. I need to fly away. I want to get high today. Who got five on my little bundle of temporary? Man, I want to live long enough to be legendary. Your statistics said by now that I'm going to be dead and buried. But when I heard your voice, it seems as if we met already. And I march for our rights, that civil, the same purpose. Two different tribes and we fighting the same person. Could it be that our eyes was deceiving us? We had to have faith when nobody believed in us. Cosmic companionship sustained me after my husband was assassinated and gave me the strength make my contribution to carrying forward his unfinished work. A man laid dead in the street today. I must have bumped my head and landed in 1940 or something, I swear. And all I have is love and joy to give. I need to spread my wings. I need to fly away. No, we're not going to fly away. We're going to fly to struggle. Welcome back to Africa on the Moon. Right now, we're going to have each one of our panelists and participants to weigh in on these important issues as they are affecting our communities and our world. Uh, recently, about a week ago, Tyler Stewart was an excellent magazine we encourage you to try to um, subscribe to. They had some very interesting articles, and one of the articles they had is dated or titled, Countries Should Endorse the Right to Education, UNESCO Recalls. I'll read a few sentences, and we'd like each one of our panelists to weigh in 
on this particular issue. It said UNESCO um, stressed that the fundamental human rights must be protected to sin every day, especially in the face of new forms of digital exclusion. The United Nations Organization for Education, Science, Culture, UNESCO, on Friday urged all countries to rally the Convention Against Discrimination in Education, a multilateral instrument that turns 60 next month. It says that the international agencies ask all countries to protect better the fundamental right to learn and recall that the pandemic threatened to leave the most vulnerable children without education. It also launched an awareness campaign to broaden understanding of the right to education and stress that governments must realize that digital inclusion, data privacy, and access to lifelong learning have become crucial needs. The Convention Against Discrimination in Education was approved on December 4, 1960, and has seen and has been ratified by 105 countries today. It states that education is a human right, not a privilege. Panelists, is education should education be a human right and not a privilege? And why we must uh, come on board to uh, support this important issue, because if we don't do it, what are the consequences? I'll start with you, Brother Hackey, um, your perspective on this particular article and the issue of education as a human right. There is no question. Education is a human right. But here's the problem, Brother Africa. This article doesn't talk about the quality of education instruction. For example, if we talk about the United States, uh, children may be educated across the board irrespective of socioeconomic standing, the problem is the quality of the instruction. So, for instance, in your suburbs where your wealthy, wealthier people tend to live, their home values are much higher. Based upon, based upon household values uh, determines the kind of money they can afford to put into the school system. So, obviously, wealthier districts can afford to find that school uh, at, a, at, a great, greater, at a greater amount at relative, you know, city schools. Conversely, in city schools where the, the, the housing tend to be dilapidated or certainly not as uh, valued as much as those homes in the suburbs, the revenues that they have to draw from are less, which means that it's reflected in the kind of quality of instruction the kids in, edu- in the urban centers get, which means that the, the quality of education is sadly lacking. So, for instance, when we talk about in terms of access to books or even access to the latest technology, these kids in the poorer areas don't have access to the latest books or the latest technology, but kids in the suburbs do. So there's a real disconnect in terms of the quality of education. And so for the U.S., they would simply say, yes, we have, we believe quality of education, and we believe education is right for all people. But what they won't say is the quality of education differs. So what the report should have said is that the quality, there should be one standard in terms of education. And that would sort of make it impossible, make it certainly difficult, you know, for countries like the United States, you know, to create situations where wealthy kids get the best education and, and poorer kids get a, a inferior education. So I'm reminded of South Africa in terms of their, their process in terms of the educational process. Clearly in the United States, this notion in terms of, you know, some people, some children should have the, the, the very best education to qualify them very best jobs. Uh, by the same token, creating the, the, the worst inferior educational system to ensure that those kids don't have a shot at the best education and best 
best jobs or best wages. So clearly, you know, I think one thing is missing has we have to talk about the, 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 the quality of instruction. That is key because if we don't talk about the quality of instruction, countries like the United States will simply get around this subject, this recommendation by simply saying we call it, we, we, we indeed educate all our kids. The reality is that uh, there is no comparison between the quality of education between suburbs and cities. Okay, Brother Hacker, you hear your perspective. Let's go to Brother Anthony. Anthony, what's your perspective on this issue of education is and should be a human right? Uh, well, I would point out uh, I agree with that education is a human right because uh, education is critical to survival and to, uh, you know, to uh, developing to your fullest human potential. And in socialist societies, education is indeed uh, considered a, 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 a human right to be enjoyed by all. It is under it is under capitalism that it becomes a privilege. And, uh, and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, and I think, uh, and I agree that, uh, that, that, that it needs to be qualified by the quality of education. As a matter of fact, I don't think the U.S. is, uh, is a signatory to this, uh, convention, uh, that this article talks about. And uh, so you know, so the U uh, uh, the U S in typical fashion picks and cho- chooses what uh, what what U N uh, uh, you know uh, norms it uh, complies with, and uh, you know, but uh, I think education is definitely a human right because without adequate education. Human uh, people cannot develop to their f- fullest human potential. You are right, Brother Anthony. U.S. is not a signatory to this particular um, document. Okay, let's go here, Brother Marlon. Brother Marlon, where do you weigh in on this issue that education should be human rights? Um, I. I concur with Brother Haki. It, it is, it is, uh, um, it is a human right to have an education. Uh, we don't have to think back that far, as in this country, as to what happens to people when you don't provide them an education. Okay, um, we become more, uh, we are more manipulating and exploitive without it, and that's in, in anybody in the world. Uh, and I also think it's important that, based on what Brother Hakeem said, that if you if you follow what goes on in any city and state uh, with the economic development, uh, that is tied directly into the education system. Because when companies go into a, a place for relocation, the first thing they look at is what kind of education system they have. So that's why you have certain companies depending upon their needs. Uh, determine where they're going to locate because they they have expectations that that the number of people uh, based on the the the, the need for education how much education they need to have whether it's the high school education or whether it's the college system 
you know, they look at that before they come into um, into a place because they know that, again, the education system right now is designed to provide workers. And also based on what Brother Haki said is that, and I think sister, uh, the sister had mentioned, this is where you can see the class in place, you know, whereas the, the many of the public school systems who do not have the, the funds to, uh, give a, a, a better standard of education. And, when I, and, and let me just clarify, what, what I talk about in education, that we are, we are talking about the, the basic reading, writing, uh, math, you know, science, uh, the necessary uh, information that, that one needs in order to make a living for oneself. And that's whether they make it for themselves or working for someone. But, yes, it is a human right. But from the city, you, usually those are your workers. In the suburbs, that's your management class, okay? So we have to pay attention to the system, how it works, okay, and, you know, and how we're going to bring the necessary changes, not in this particular and within our particular time, but for the next generation, so it is a human right. Okay, next we'll go to our Sister Eleanor. Your position, Sister Eleanor, on the issue of education and whether it should be a principal issue of being a human right, Sister Eleanor. Uh, I concur that education is absolutely a human right. And I... Um, have seen a decline in my lifetime in the United States where once upon a time it was the Soviet Union and the United States back to back, number one and number two in world literacy. Now we're down in the double digits if we're still there, the U.S. And uh, we have a lack, we are lacking in, in homegrown, educated people. You find white rallying around trying to siege the cap take take over the capital but they don't they and many other Americans don't have the education and the skills to take over jobs amazon has moved into the dmv the washington dc metropolitan area offering great paying jobs but there's not uh the the indigenous population many of us are not prepared to take those jobs. So those jobs go to new young people moving into the region. So I see education as a human right. I support organizations like PINK that's investing in educating young girls and women throughout the world and providing uh, agricultural support so that they uh, not only are able to read and write, but they're able to eat, so they're able to concentrate to read and write. So we need to feed the people, and then we'll be able to educate the people. And it's very important to have a standardized curriculum. As many of the speakers have said, education varies from community to community. In the District of Columbia, they spend almost a billion a billion dollars, I think, a little under a billion dollars on education, but everyone's miseducated. We have a huge dropout rate, 
and uh, it, it's unbelievable. And we've seen the uh, 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 annexation of this city. It's gone from being a chocolate city to vanilla villa. And, uh, and what does it hold for the future in terms of education, I wonder. But I hope that the children that are in school now begin to get a better education. But there's also another aspect to education as a human right. Lifelong education is a human right, and it should be incorporated in progressive societies to educate their seniors as well as their infants. Everyone has a right to education. Education is a human right. It is an essential human right. And and right now, we need to bridge the gap the digital divide. We need to make sure that people have the equipment in their homes, making it affordable so that, you know, uh, everyday people can have an iPad or um, a MacBook or, or, or an iPhone. We have children robbing people in the subway of their cell phones because they can't afford them and no one's providing them for them. Well, at a point when it's important to be involved and engaged in this IT, in this computer world, it's important for the state to provide the tools and the equipment for all its citizens so that we can maintain our, our strength as a nation. You know, capitalism is a, is a, you know, we have capitalists right now that are only thinking of their pocket, their bottom line. But then there are people like, uh, uh, what's that guy's name um, that gives away all his money? Anybody can tell me? I can't think of his name right now. He taught Bill Gates to be charitable. Joe Soros, Bill Gates, Joe Soros, um... No. No, no, um, what's the guy from uh, Alabama? Um, I'm is sorry, it? I can't think of Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, thank you. Warren Buffett, for an example, when Donald Trump was elected, the first thing he did was gave all the rich people a tax cut, and he confused the working class by giving them, uh, those who had children a little tax uh, uh, return as long as their children were under 18. But all Trump did was lower the tax base for the rich. He, he was saying that if they had more money, they would better serve us and we would be better paid, the rest of us, the masses. Well, that didn't work. Warren Buffett said, look, I went to sleep last night, got up this morning with $28 million more million in my pocket. All that happened was Donald Trump. Well, that was not the beginning of the of the backsliding in education in America. But I would tell everyone, look what's happening to America. This lack of education for the masses has caused us to be not one of the leading nations in education, but we're down. Uh, I haven't looked for years, but I think we were 21 or something. That's ridiculous. Right now, we need a real good engineer or someone or someone in IT. They're coming from India. MIT isn't the spot anymore. You know, we're looking to India in terms of pharmaceuticals, in terms of uh, uh, of technology, that's where the workforce comes from. 
We look at countries like Finland. They don't export goods. They export people, their brains, their education, and what makes them marketable globally. So we need to think of our workforce as a commodity, and that's when education is will be implemented once again where people will learn basic mathematics. They'll be able to do algebra. They'll understand calculus. They'll understand uh, uh, science. This will help uh, stop this massive global warming when we allow people to understand the environment and the impact their behavior has on the environment. When we allow children to watch clouds and be able to identify clouds, stand up in a sunny day and be able to tell uh, which way is east and which way is west simply because they know how the sun rises. We've gotten so far from very basic education, it's unbelievable. And I see people earning great money that they just don't know very much. So we need to get back to a good liberal arts education that includes science, mathematics, and computer knowledge. You know, I I hear about hackers all the time. I have a hard time turning my computer on and remembering the password. So we need to educate everyone from zero to grade. There should always be educational opportunities for all citizens in a progressive society. And this effort by UNESCO is great. And again, the way we can change is to start educating women and girls. This class of people, children, uh, women raise all the children, so we need to educate women and girls. Girls also care for the children. They're children themselves, but they're responsible for caring for other children. So, again, let's think about uh, a national movement that promotes education. Um, we should learn about voting rights in school. We should learn about registering to vote in school. We should learn about expecting to earn a great salary in school. We should learn that we can be doctors, we can be scientists, architects, dentists, veterinarians, environmental scientists in school. Children aren't learning that. Many kids enter school, they're just there. No one tells them how bright their future can be and how important it is that they reach for the stars. And again, we got to bring up Carter G. Woodson, this education of the Negro. I think it's a good read for under 200 pages. Thank you. Thank you. I will know we go to Brother Moses. What should we take on this issue of education as a human right? Brother Moses. Yeah, um, definitely education is a human right. Uh, it should be a human right under capitalism. Of course, you know, everything's a commodity and everything's up for sale and it's being being bought and sold in the marketplace. And uh, you have to go into debt, student debt, and et cetera, in terms of the U.S. But nevertheless, um, people have should have the right to education from from birth to the cra- to the grave, uh, basically, they should always be learning and uh, in a progressive 
society that would be happening. I think Cuba is, a, is an example of of uh, that we can look to. Uh, uh, there's a lot to be said on this subject, uh, but I'm not going to go into it right now. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And also something about education people must keep in mind, that the enemy does use it as a tool, as a weapon to determine how many prisons they were built, particularly for African communities, as it relates to people's inability to be able to comprehend, to be able to read and write. Uh, a lot of it is based upon um, those kind of statistics. So the less means of education we have available to us, the greater there will be more likely building more prisons to incarcerate us. So that's a Clearly, there is a correlation between education and imprisonment, as they see the pipeline. So let's continue to move forward as we deal with people are talking. Also, from Tallahassee Magazine, there was another interesting article we encourage you to listen to, which is titled, Protests in 60-plus Countries Reject Genocidal U.S. Blockade on Cuba. It reads, citizens and organizations from at least 60 countries on five continents have begun activities since Saturday, which actually was last weekend, to demand the end of U.S. economic, commercial, and financial blockade against Cuba. In the Worldwide Day, the initiative launched a, a month ago by, ago by, the Europe, by Europe for Cuba channel in coordination with solidarity movements and groups in different parts of the planet will take place today and tomorrow. Sunday with cars and bicycles, caravans, rallies, marches, and mountains climbing, among other diverse actions. In other words, this past last weekend there was a movement around the world where people were asking the U.S. to stop the genocidal blockade against Cuba, particularly as we look at this question, what's going on with the pandemic and the positive role that Cuba is playing. Let's um, just talk a little bit about that. Um, Brother Haki, when we talk about genocidal um, um, blockade, why the word genocide is used in this incident, incident based upon your reading? Well, the, the, we understand that the policy implemented by the U.S. is consciously done. Anytime you blockade a country and prevent it from receiving the things it needs, like medicines, food, etc., essentially what you're doing is you're dooming people to a kind of a desperation. But not only desperation, but essentially what you're saying is you're dooming them to death. Because those things they need in terms of you know, uh, your longevity, in terms of just being able to live, are denied them. So it's a systematic approach in terms of oppressing a nation with the, with the objective in mind that if you oppress them hard enough and long enough and, you, and create enough suffering in that society, then what's going to happen? The people are going to turn against that government. Of course, one of the things they underestimate was that when you talk about the Cuban resilience of the Cuban people. And in fact, uh, the Cuban government did a very good job in terms of educating people. When we talk about education, Cuba has one of the highest uh, educational rates, literacy rates in the world. And so, therefore, the U.S. is finding it very difficult in terms of actually being to an impact on Cuban policy, given the fact that people are so aware. But the, but the destruction in terms of, uh, you know, uh, undermining of people's livelihood in Cuba goes on. And so when we talk about genocidal, there's no question. Uh, the intent 
is to kill people. And, of course, one of the things that uh, a killing does, it, it, it evokes a kind of emotional response. So when you see people die around you, their natural inclination is, I don't want to die either. So, therefore, if, if, if I can do something in terms of undermining this government to bring it to an end, then that's what I'm going to do. So clearly it's the, the, the impulse of the United States uh, uh, policy is to commit genocide against the Cuban people. And the mere fact that, you know, um, 60 of the world's uh, na- nations called upon the United States to put an end to that uh, speaks violence in terms of the kind of understanding uh, 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 kind of the humanity Cuba brings to the world in terms of its focus in terms on creating those things which are good for, for humanity. Whereas in America, everything about is about... Um, Materialism, everything's about uh, uh, asset prices, everything about accumula- wealth accumulation. And Cuba is about humanity, and it's one of the things that scares the hell out of the U.S. leadership. Because anytime you have a, a country which, which upholds human values, you know, it becomes an implicit threat to the United States. Because clearly, when you talk about the infant mortality in the United States, you talk about the lack of uh, access to employment in the United States. When you talk about to lack of education in the United States, or you talk about lack of homelessness, the homelessness in the United States, all those things are, are, are human rights issues. And, and clearly, that Cuba being a poor, small nation, being in a position to actually impact in a favorable way in terms of providing for its population, casts a serious doubt in terms of what is the problem in the United States. Why can the United States, supposedly the wealthiest country in the world, where actually the second wealthiest country in the world, why can't it do more in terms of you know uh, feeding, educating? and uh, housing its population. So uh, so clearly, the 60 countries who oppose uh, U.S. genocidal efforts are right on time. I would add, yeah, yes, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that I think this uh this uh massive international demonstration in support of Cuba is also represents an intensification of the struggle for so- for scientific socialism uh because uh and I think the reason why Cuba enjoys such great support around the world is because of its history of solidarity with other struggling people around the world, uh, particularly in, uh, in Africa. And uh, so I think that is why there's this outpouring out, uh, of support for Cuba's right to self-determination and to, and, and to uh, you know, and to be free to develop according to its own, uh, you know, uh, its own interests and its own will. And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, and I think it shows that there is a lot of opposition around the world toward U.S. policy toward Cuba and its rationale for it. And, uh, you know, and the thing, and, uh, you know, and I think it shows above all that the struggle between the haves and the have-nots is intensifying. Thank you, Brother Anthony. We're going to hear, Sister Eleanor, your perspective on this yes. particular issue. Yes, Sister well, Eleanor, uh, Mike is yours. 
again, we were talking about education, and education is a human right, just as housing is a basic human right. And Cuba is an excellent example of supporting human rights through its advanced literacy of all of its population. It somehow has done great things in protecting its people against this, this pandemic and done uh, incredible things with the developing their own vaccines. And you see countries like Ireland and, and I, I think New Zealand, where there are many political parties. In Ireland, I think there are about 11. In New Zealand, there are six. They don't have a two-party system like here, but they have many parties. So people can speak out and have dialogue and different views and they are in support of lifting the embargo to Cuba. As I said earlier this evening, I think with the uh, pandemic that we need to follow Minnesota and what the city council did, I think, in uh, Milwaukee. I may be wrong uh, in asking that uh, the embargo be lifted against Cuba so that we can work together met- scientifically to bring an end to this pandemic. There's so much we can learn from the Cuban people. And in terms of education, if, our, if we can train our African-American children and our Native American children, all our working-class children, in particular African-American children and Native American children, are invited to Cuba to attend medical school. So learn Spanish, reach for the stars, go to our brothers and sisters in Cuba, and become doctor of us in the United States. We need black doctors. We need doctors on the reservation. We need people like ourselves that understand us and think our health is important. So I see uh, the lifting of the embargo as being potentially very valuable to uh, the development of planet Earth. Right now, we have to think about our Earth, planet Earth as our home, one community. Save it. We, the ocean, the Antarctic, look what's happening. Polar bears are floating out into the ocean. It breaks my heart due to global warming. Look what's happening to us. We need to stop it now. And one way to stop it is to look at Cuba. Cuba does so much in terms of agriculture. I think they're one of the most uh, progressive countries in terms of agriculture. They're organic farmers due to the embargo. They didn't get caught up in the petrochemical uh, 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 industrial farming that took over the United States since the 1950s and has displaced the small, so many small farmers. So, uh, yes, again, Cuba is a role model for the world because they believe in education from birth to the grave. And they not only believe it, but they practice it. And it's demonstrated in how they're able to protect their waters, protect the health of their people despite the embargo by coming up with some form of a vaccine that is effective. And uh, Cuba being the largest uh, Caribbean island nation uh, is, 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 is extremely important to us as, as, as 
U.S. citizens. They're our neighbors. They're 90 miles away from us. So stop the embargo. And we need to uh, learn again, learn from each other, and remember that education is a human right. And as the two brothers said, that the homelessness problem is directly related, I believe, to a lack of education. And as you, Brother Africa, spoke, the lack of education helped finance the the, um, industrial prison complex by providing workers. And when they enter that complex, they lose the 15th protection of the 15th Amendment, so they are effectively slaves. I don't buy anything from companies that I know that have best invested in the industrial prison uh, – what do we call it? Industrial prison uh, – Prison for profit. It's the industrial prison complex. They're prisons for profit, and it's destroying uh, millions of people. And that's the only place where you can see a lot of African Americans. We may represent a marginal part of the portion of the population, but somehow we manage to fill the jails, and we are the workers. I wouldn't. I. I if Victoria's Secret is using them to produce products, boycott Victoria's Secret. If 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 Pepsi Cola pulls out of Georgia because of its uh, uh, new harsh voter suppression laws support Pepsi. I believe in economics. Uh, I, I, I don't spend any money anywhere where the workers are oppressed or civil rights are oppressed. And uh, again, I support, and as I've mentioned throughout this evening, uh the distribution of vaccines globally, and I mentioned earlier to, to Cuba if necessary, but most importantly, we need to learn how come Cuba has been so successful in suppressing COVID-19. What are they doing right? We need to know. And again, uh, the capitalists, we need to, as a nation, that's why voting is important, as a nation, we need to tell these big shots, enough is enough. And the way we do it is by taking over the communities where you stand. You know, register to vote, run for public office, get yourself elected, and have an impact where you live. That's how you change the world also. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Noah. Before we go to Brother Marwa and Moses, we would like to alert our listening audience that one of the things we are planning on doing, we're going to be in conjunction with some other organization in our community. We're going to take a Solidarity Black History Tour trip to Cuba in this upcoming December. So we want you to put that on your list and try to um, organize some friends to come with us where we come and Show our respect to Cuba, give our respect to Cuba, show give them our thanks, show our thanks and gratitude for all they have done for Africa, African people, humanity, and, you know, just if you're going to travel, go somewhere that can mean something to you and your people. Um, Cuba is an independent country, it's a liberated zone, and we must protect their all costs, but let's show our love and support to Cuba. 
Um, our friends and supporters of Africa on the Moon, we ask you to put on your agenda to come and join us um, this December 2021 as we go to Cuba. So put down your agenda. We'll be talking about more about this upcoming trip in conjunction with other groups. So right there, we go to Brother Mawa. Brother Mawa, the mic is yours. Well, the only thing I have to add as to what has been said is I think what this article reflects uh, that is is not explicitly said, but implies that other countries are aiming at the U.S. for having had this embargo uh, blockade for so long in place for the reason, okay, that it has been in place. And I think... uh, other countries are just recognizing that it's time for the U.S. to remove this blockade uh, because it's really they, it has no business being in place in the, right now anyway. And I think the president, um, um, presidential administration uh, may may make some effort. I, I haven't seen any, any um, evidence of that. But, of course, you know, I do give – Barack Obama some credit for what he did in terms of allowing us to be able to travel to um, to Cuba. So, but it just needs to be removed, and I think that's what the the blockade of the uh, protest was about. Go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, the mic is yours. Brother Moses with the Cuban Revolution, but so like, let's get that straight. Um, there's a lot of counter-revolutionary activity going around in terms of the Cuban Revolution. Uh, um, there's this band now, uh, counter-revolutionary music uh, um, um, that the Cuban people uh, uh, have put out uh, official statements about uh, calling them mercenaries, etc. But like you know, it was the Cuban Revolution and and, and uh, everything it stands for is is uh, should be a, 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 a blueprint for what we are doing here in the USA in terms of progressive people trying to bring about a new day. Uh, and so I I I, I don't want to keep repeating what everybody else has said. Of course, you know it's a human right and and it's recognized in Cuba, in education, et cetera, health care as well. And, you know, definitely they're doing marvelous things with the COVID-19, and I salute them for that. All right, Brother Moses, and to our listening audience, you're listening to Africa on the Move, on the move and our final takes for tonight. As it relates to our theme tonight, part two, people are talking. One of the things we would like to make a ask each one of our um, panelists and Analysts to make a response to is this article as relates to Africa confirmed COVID-19 cases near 4,155,938 cases of, of people who have died with AIDS so far in Africa. What does that represent? What does that mean? What is the implication? Many times we talk about the virus, even when they give us numbers. Most of the time when it comes to Africa, it's 
unreported, but we need to be aware of the impact they're having on our home, Mama Africa. So, panelists, when you saw this this reporting, what do we need to take from this, Brother Hackey? I don't know, brother. Uh, it's sort of a, for me, it's sort of a mixed response. Uh, clearly, they're they're presenting the article as though somehow um, this, this this pandemic, for lack of a better term, is sweeping the continent. But at the same token, they talk about the fact that of that four million people who uh, who infected with this the so-called COVID nineteen, uh, three million seven hundred twenty-three thousand and twenty-one people actually uh, got over the COVID nineteen. So the statistics are not as grim as they as they as they alleged. Uh, so clearly, you know, I, I think uh, this COVID-19 is something that we have to discuss more, but I have my own ob- my own observations with respect to COVID-19, mainly being that, you know, um, you know, we, we can't downplay the political aspect in terms of COVID-19. One of the things that I'm very concerned about in terms of, you know, COVID-19 vaccine expenditures in terms of the impact it has on very fragile economies. And so one of the things uh, um, the West wants to do is to create a scenario which is conceivably uh, it can um, um, hamper of Africa's uh, growing economy. So clearly, you know, I think COVID-19 has political ramifications, and uh, even though this article doesn't mention that, I'm, much, I'm very much concerned about that, not close with that. Your point is very noted, Brother Hackey. Yes, he's talking about the 4 million. You only had like 111,000 deaths so far. But anyway, let's go to Brother Anthony. Your take on this article, Brother Anthony. Uh, yes, uh, I think I, I agree with all the points uh, Haki made, and I would uh, add that uh, in addition to this, uh, to the pandemic, uh, let's see, uh, Africa's continued, uh, you know, lack of, uh, you know, uh, pan-Africanism is uh, playing into the hands of the enemies of Africa. And, uh, you know, diseases which respect no political boundaries are better handled when Africa unites, has one unified socialist uh, government. And, uh, you know, and it's under and it's only under that situation that all the enemies of Africa can be defeated. And also it uh, provides, uh, you know, a, a, a homeland for Africans in the diaspora. Thank you. So that must be the goal of all uh, African uh, revolutionaries. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Sister Eleanor, your thoughts? Well, as I said earlier, um, you know, I expressed the concern about uh, uh, Africa, and as the agency of the African Union reported, uh, the 111,000 deaths, 50,000 of them were in South Africa, and uh, I mentioned about 11,000. I, I know the other countries affected were South Africa, uh, Egypt had 11,000 about, and then Morocco and Tunisia, and why were those countries having all these deaths? And then I understand that 32 countries in Africa had begun vaccinating the high-risk population groups. 
And so what I'm hoping is that the vaccine will be made available and produced by uh, pharmaceutical companies in Africa and that the African Union continues to promote Pan-Africanism and unity amongst all African people. And it's so funny because that would mean that since after Nigeria, the, the second largest Afrocentric country in the world is actually not on the continent, it's Brazil. And they have an incredibly high uh, mortality rate with this virus. So we need to unite. Um, I am glad to see what the African Union has said and come out with these numbers concerning the pandemic in Africa. It's interesting how uh, Central and West Africa is somehow sustaining itself, and it would be good for us, again, to work as a global community to understand what nation is doing to contain uh, this pandemic. Because we've seen Africa deal with Ebola, and it was squashed uh, under the Obama administration, uh, President Obama, we can give him some credit for assisting with that. But I think it's the people themselves in Africa who were able to uh, bring an end rapidly to the Ebola. Uh, uh, It wasn't a pandemic, but it could have been, and it was squashed. So um, we need to understand why Egypt, South Africa, Morocco, Tunisia, and these places are suffering so. And uh, the best way uh, to do that is uh, by making the vaccine available to everyone and working with the World Health Organization to begin to have international dialogue on what the pros and cons were of treating this pandemic. As we speak right now, Italy had to shut down uh, for the Easter weekend because they're having a surge. And I understand we're having a a potential surge in our country right now. So um, I'm glad to hear the figures on Africa. I had brought it up earlier this evening, uh, uh, my concern for uh, these countries that are having these ridiculous deaths in Africa. And... uh, Somehow, uh, it is so apparent that African people are most, most are so harmed by this, this COVID-19. Look at, uh, now what's happening in Nigeria right now versus Brazil. Brazil has a phenomenal death rate, whereas Nigeria is somehow a very populous country is uh, the uh, largest African populist country. Uh, Brazil is number two in terms of Afrocentric culture or people. And um, somehow they're managing. They, they, you know, the pandemic has definitely had an impact and there are mortality, there have been mortalities in Nigeria, but they're managing to suppress it while they're at war. So I would right now for all the violent fighting that's going on during this pandemic in Africa, in Asia, 
in anywhere in the world to stop for there to be a global ceasefire, make education a human right, housing is a human right, food is a human right, and most importantly, health care. Right now we have people starving in Yemen. You know, you talk about uh, embargoes. The Bay of Pigs was over 60 years ago. It's time to let it go. It's a new world. We're in the 21st century. Marvin, your thoughts, please. Um, I don't have a lot to because I really would like to do more research um, because the article is so short. Um, so, but the one the one thing I will say that I I was glad to read is that the numbers are coming from the African CDC and not outside of the continent. So, but I would like I, I'm looking to do more research um, before I speak on. On it because the article was so short. Okay, and Brother Moses, your thought on the article? Well, um, that uh, that's what we're subject here. We're speaking on um, in Africa. Uh, well, this, I just I just think that you know, as long as the people take the enemy seriously, and and right now the number one enemy in the world is this epidemic, is this pandemic or whatever and uh and the name of the game is to take the enemy seriously pay attention to details do the things that are necessary this is science and it's not just um some feelings or something you got to put your brain in gear and 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 put politics in command of economics and and uh and in the long run it'll be the just struggles of the people naturally support each other and to so in the long run, it'll be for the best interest of the working class. Thank you. Minor two-cent words for this article I'd like to share with the listening audience. Recently, there was a discussion inside of Alzania, South Africa, around this whole question of vaccination. And one of the concerns many of your progressive groups have raised inside of Alzania this is so-called South Africa, is that they're asking why is it that only the Western nations are allowed to bring their vaccine in? Why the people can't have choices in allowing Cuban medicines to come in and China medicines to come in or Russian medicine to come in? Why only just the West, those countries that have been historically hostile to the interests of Africa and African people? And like they said, Figures don't lie, but lies do figures. And, you know, when you are in a very vulnerable position and you're taking things with those who have historically been your enemy and those who are your enemy, um, you know, they don't never have your interests at heart. Um, you know, I think we need to be very concerned in terms of looking at these practices and this, this whole phenomenon of dealing with this so-called virus. But anyway, on that note, Panelists and participants, job well done. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'd like to have your final thoughts, your summary, final thoughts for today's program. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word 
Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Chains living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must to last through my journey, yeah, last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. Must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh, 
Line across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. Light is clear. Oh, how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey. Yeah, and made it through my journey. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'd like to welcome everyone back to Africa on the Move, and we are making our final remarks for today's program, which is the 4th of April, 2021, Part 2, People Are Talking. 
We will start off with Brother Moses. You'll find him in March for today's program, Brother Moses. Yeah, um, it's been an interesting program. I've, I've learned a lot. Uh, I think uh, it's good when we have people who are thinkers and uh, who are given uh, consideration to to uh, the issues and uh, have a good ideological uh, stand in terms of loving the masses of people and looking out for the interests of the masses of the people. And that makes a big difference because, you know, we have people like Trump who, who are, who are narcissistic and, uh, and fascistic. And so, you know, it's good to have a different, another, no, there's another world is possible. And, uh, good night. Good night. Thank you, Brother Moses, for your contribution to today's program. And we now will move next to our sister, Eleanor. You found the thoughts for the night, sister Eleanor. Just wanted to thank you all. Thank you, Brother Africa and everyone for allowing me to participate in your program. And in reference to Cuba, before we shut off this evening, you know, they had 79,544 cases of the virus to date. They have had 74,240-some thousand recoveries and only 456 deaths. I looked at uh, all three Congos, including the Congo uh, Kinshasa, and they've had a relatively low, uh, the Congo Kinshasa at uh, 57,000 plus cases with 51,700 recoveries and only 851 reported deaths. So, um, and I looked at Albania, an alleged communist country, and they've had uh, very few deaths compared to the United States, uh, Brazil, Mexico, South Africa. So um, I think the, the the Cuban numbers, just the fact that the Cuban uh, people have uh, so well and only had 456 deaths, we need to work with the Cuban people um, Think about uh, lifting this embargo for the sake of humanity because the rich may think that all that matters is themselves, but we have to think about the future of this planet for every living thing, for our people, for our animals, our plants. You know, we have to love Mother Earth. She's suffering. And as a result of her suffering, we are suffering. So it's time to realize that no matter how rich you are, you can't escape COVID-19, even if you can afford to fly to Palm Beach and get your virus shot first. Obviously, you see there's a problem. So I say viva la cubiano. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but at least they got a hold on this covert. So we need to learn from them and let's... uh, open up the borders and share knowledge, share vaccine information, suppress this pandemic, register to vote, and thank you for letting us know about your planned caravan to Cuba this December 2021. Thank you, Brother Africa. Thank you, everyone. 
Thank you, Sister Eleanor, for your contribution as well to today's program. Spread the word, share with your friends and neighbors, and tell them to come and join us on a weekly basis. Uh, every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S., we would like to have them all. So uh, next we will move on to our Brother Myron. Brother Myron, give us your final thoughts for tonight. The mic is yours. Um, first, thank you. It's been a while since I've been on the show, so thank you for the invitation. Uh, my final thoughts is um, as much as we we hope and wish, uh, the things are gonna will get better. Uh, unfortunately, it, it's not uh, just on hopes and wishes, but it will get better if we learn uh, to change the things about ourselves that need to be changed because we only have control of ourselves. So we need to each of us look at what we know or what we think we know, be open to learning new things and changing some of the uh, some of the things that we have bought into, um, especially with religion, because religion is, is, is a big factor and, and, and the ability of the government and others to control us. So we have to be willing to unlearn some things, uh, to change some things. So, again, thank you for the opportunity, and I wish maybe I'll come back um, uh, when the opportunity presents itself. Thank you. Brother Now we'd like to thank you for your contribution as well today's program. And while we got you here, Brother Marlon, you're always one of our favorites. We'd love to have you come back next week if you got the time. This mic is always open to you. So you let us know, and we look forward to hopefully seeing you next week. We thank you again for your contribution to today's program. Next we'll go to Brother Haki. Give us your final thoughts for tonight. We're going to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, the mic is now yours. Well, let me be brief. Let me just say that this world is governed by real polity. In other words, uh, right might makes right, and we got to be very clear on that. When they had Brighton rules back in '44, the whole point was to organize the world in such a way that Western nations benefit at exploitation from the exploitation of other nations. Uh, so clearly, that um, that that paradigm has has changed. Any, in fact, the kind of exploitation that they're practicing now, given neoliberalism, is actually intensifying. So we can't be idealistic. We've got to be real in terms of our analysis and terms of what's going on in the world. Uh, this notion in terms of morality, uh, you know, one thing that you've got to do is understand that morality has no place in the context of real polity. And uh, so, so the reality is that if we're going to resolve the situations that we're confronted with, then we have to do it ourselves. Nobody's going to do it for us. No system is going to do that. The bottom line is that uh, we're in for a fight. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. And as always, I encourage the masses of people you know, to unravel the matrix, because that is so key in terms of longevity society. And having said that, you have a good night. Good night to you, Brother Hackey, and thank you as well for your contribution. Today's program, and last night not least, we bring in our Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. <clears throat> Certainly. Uh, a couple of observations. Those countries that have uh that have national health systems have dealt more effectively with this pandemic 
than uh, countries that ha- that 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 don't have uh, a national health care system like the U.S. and Brazil. And I would add that uh, you know there's a saying that in, Kwame Nkrumah used to point out that organization decides everything, and that is indeed true. And those uh, and those countries that have national health systems have been able to deal more effectively with the pandemic as, uh, you know, it affects its population than disorganized, uh, you know, uh, you know, than places where people are disorganized. So I think this points to the importance of a permanent political organization. And that, uh, and I think it's important that Africans understand that our uh, our enemies are organized and powerful, and the only way we can, uh, uh, you know, overcome them and uh, gain our liberty is through permanent mass organization. And how can they find out more about your organization, Brother Anthony? Certainly. Uh, they can find out more about uh, about the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. And uh, there you can learn more about the, the 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 programs and activities of our organization, and uh, and the history of Pan Africanism. And brother Anthony, we thank you for your contribution to today's program as well, and to our friends, supporters, and listening audience, and those who may be listening to this program. We like to remind you: come and join us. Come and join us every Sunday. Time at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we can speak truth to power and to provide us or provide our people with information so that they can use it as a tool for liberation. Yes, we think it's important. If you don't have anything else, let your voice be heard, particularly when it comes to let's put an end to this racist, illegal, immoral U.S. blockade against Cuba. We come and tell you, please put on your agenda to come and join us as we begin to plan for our trip, our annual trip, historical trip, cultural trip to Cuba to visit our brothers and sisters and to show our solidarity and support for all the beautiful work that they have done and continue to do for Africa, African people and humanity. If you want more information, please email us at Africa on the move, the number two at gmail.com. Until next time, we'll see you next week, same time, same station. Spread the word and remember, Pan-Africanism is the key. It will set all African free. And once we are organized, we will never have to worry about our people functioning in a manner of being self-destructive. We'll see you next week. This is Africa on the Move with Brother we'll Africa. agree tonight, all of the speakers have agreed that America has a very serious
against this bugging. It's one of two suckers, ignorant brothers, trying to rob and steal from one another. You get caught in the mid. So to crush that stereotype, here's what we did. We got ourselves together so that you could unite and fight for what's right. Not negative cause. The way we live is positive. We don't kill our relatives. Pop, 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 when it's shot, who's the blame? Headline, front page, and rap, the name. MC Delight here to state the bottom line. The black on black crime was way before our time. Took a brother's life with a knife at his wife. Cried because he died of trifling death when he left his very last breath. Was I slept to watch his step? Back in the 60s, our brothers and sisters were hanged. How could you gang bang? I never ever ran from the Ku Klux Klan, and I shouldn't have to run from a black man. Because that. Nonsense violence, not a good policy, therefore we must ignore 
out the door so there'll be no bum rushing. Let's get together because we're falling apart. I heard a brother shot another, it broke my heart. I don't understand the difficulty, people. Love your brother, treat him as an equal. They call us animals, mm-mm, I don't agree with them. I'll prove them wrong, but right is what you're proving them. Take keys before I leave for what I'm saying, or we'll all be on our knees. is served on a platter, making a date, not failing to anticipate, they got greedy so they fell for the bait, that makes them a victim, picked and plucked, new jack in jail, but this the best they ever duck, there's no one around cause in jail you're a number, they never took the time to wonder about, yes we urge to merge, we live for the love of our people to hope they get a
Don't punish me, 
Right on. 